You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. The world we are preparing, Winston, is a constant victory, a constant triumph. You are beginning to accept it. We'll soon welcome it and finally become part of it. In 1949, George Orwell had a vision of the future. Today, that vision is still a best-selling novel, and his prophecy remains as terrifying as ever. If you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. A future where freedom becomes slavery. Where privacy is forbidden. The past forgotten and where living people simply vanish. Yet one man and one woman dare to love. Can you get Sunday afternoon off? Yes. Take this. Everyone knows. The thing that is in room 101 is the worst thing in the world. We can't get inside you. We can't get to your heart. John Hurt, Susanna Hamilton, Cyril Cusack, and Richard Burton in the crowning role of his career. What are your true feelings towards Big Brother? Dead. You must love him. It's not enough to obey him. You must love him. The film of the book of the year. George Orwell's 1984. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Emily Travia. Down with capitalists. Also with us this week is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at Michael Radford's 1984, based on George Orwell's seminal dystopian novel, 1984 is the story of Winston Smith, a cog in the wheel of a depressing world in which a all-powerful state controls its people with fear, removal of privacy, constant warfare, and absolute control of the media. Boy, does that sound familiar. Of course, we're going to be getting into some spoilers for 1984, the various movies, the book, the radio play, probably not the opera, but the whole ball of wax. So if you've never experienced 1984, for gosh sakes, go out and do so now, and then come on back. We will still be here. So, Emily, rather than asking when you first saw 1984, can you tell me your experience with Orwell's work? I guess like a lot of people, it began in high school. So I think going back almost 20 years and I guess when I was about 16 in 10th grade, uh, one of the books assigned was 1984. And me being the nerd and excited sci-fi fan that I was, I, unlike probably a lot of kids in my class, actually read the book and fell in love with it. And uh, from there, did watch the movie after that and did kind of continue on with 
every book I could find that was like 1984. And with Orwell himself, I had read it during college, during high school, different essays and some other things. And then about two years ago, I thought it would be a good idea to revisit a bunch of books I'd read when I was younger. Uh, and then, so I reread 1984, reread The Handmaid's Tale, and then realized I was getting really depressed and stopped that project. So that's where we're at now. For me, it's actually kind of the opposite. I had this weird experience in high school where for this one particular, I think it was sophomore year, where normally you would read 1984. And one of the worst English teachers I've ever had in my life, not going to say her name, but she made us do this awful thing where instead of making everyone read all the required books, she split us into groups so that only like five people in the class read 1984. And I I think I read Tess of the Dubervilles, which is amazing, but in, and also very depressing, but in a completely different way. So I actually read and was obsessed with Fahrenheit 451 first and Brave New World and Alan Moore's V for Vendetta. So by the time I read 1984, just of my own accord in college, I don't think it seemed quite as new until I realized like how much earlier it had been written. So sort of an alternate path. I'm trying to remember when I read 1984. I think it was high school. It was probably my, um, rather than English class, my history professor was the person who really did a great job of assigning books. So we read 1984, we read Anthem, we read Animal Farm, uh, Cahil Gibran's The Prophet, Siddhartha, so many great books in that class. And 1984 was definitely one of those. And I, I grew up, uh, I think I'm a little bit older than you two, uh, when I was 12, uh, the world uh, came upon 1984, the actual year, and so the media just ate that up, and I remember TV specials, I mean, it's no coincidence that Walter Cronkite wrote the intro to the paperback version of 1984 that I have because he was all over the television talking about 1984 and just, you know, all of these articles and think pieces and, and all this about how similar the world might be to 1984. And yeah, there were a lot of similarities and in, in 1984 itself, but Boy, oh boy, uh, we, we've come a long way, baby, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's no small coincidence that on April 4th around the country, there were uh, uh, screenings of 1984 that happened throughout the United States and in different independent cinemas. So uh, we, we kind of missed that. We missed the April 4th date, but we had decided before that that 1984 was going to be a good movie and um, just book and, and kind of cultural phenomenon to discuss. So I have to say, going back to the book, like you were saying, Emily, it is so <sighs> fucking depressing. It's really oh a God. hard – It. I mean, it's not – it wasn't a hard read when I was 16 and it was – you know, in the 90s, but things have changed a little bit. I don't know if anybody's noticed, but it's a little relevant. It's rough. It it was also rough. And I know, Mike, you commented on this on Facebook. It was really rough to watch. So to reread the book and to watch all these different versions of it within basically the span of a week, I reached this point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) I had to go watch Beastmaster to cheer myself up. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah, similarly dystopian, sort of, but not depressing. 
I was trying to reread the book and it was getting to the point where I just couldn't go through it anymore. And I finally downloaded the audio version of it and was listening to it in the car. And then I could take it in like little half hour chunks on the way to and from work. But otherwise it was just like, Oh my gosh, this is just way too much. And especially as the book is playing out in my car and I have it fresh in my mind and I go into work and then I see the headlines. I see Kellyanne Conway. It's just like I I see people asking Kellyanne Conway, is it this or is it that? And then her answer is yes. And I'm just like, (laughs) wow, this is this is double think just exemplified by a person in a horrifying way. Yeah. And I mean, last week, I don't know how much we want to reveal about what time it is that we're recording, but was it just last week or very recently that Sean Spicer comes out and talks about the Holocaust centers and all of this history that suddenly everybody's jaws dropping, but you have somebody representing the country saying things in a way that we don't say. And it's getting really scary, everybody. Yeah, they're not Holocaust centers. They're concentration clubs. So I feel like for me, it kind of comes in waves where I have weeks where I'm like, okay, this is the world we live in. And then I have weeks where I just can't deal with it. And that whole Sean Spicer thing was just... Because I've been writing this book on World War II and cult cinema forever. So I've just been doing loads of World War II research. So I think I'm particularly sensitive to it. And it was like, is this for real? Like, did he just actually say, like, no. <laughs> just And how was he not fired yet? And And that's the thing, I think, is it's easy to... I'm terrified of the day we let that go. Yeah. <laughs> and you see people saying that of, oh, you know, he just, he just made a mistake. He just misspoke. First of all, he's a spokesman of all the things that you can't do right. That's one of those things you're supposed to be able to do right. But that aside, it's that fear that, right, but if as soon as we let this go, we're going to let the, the next thing go. And before we know it, Germany was our ally during World War II. And it just gets really scary. And I don't know that we've ever been at a point in history where it is feels so much like 1984 and like it could become that and you're seeing the seeds of it and you know not to not that we weren't going to be political on this episode but even if you're an apolitical person you and if you live in the united states right now you got to be looking around and you have to be terrified or you're not looking around exactly (laughs) there's that option yes just reading your uh prole issued pornography and and calling it a day So much of, well, this book comes out of a place that is kind of similar to uh, where we are now to where Orwell was when he wrote it. He was so dissatisfied after World War II and seeing the Labour Party taking over uh, the UK and writing it from this place where he was, it sounds like he was as depressed as we are now, but back in 1948-49 when he put this out. One thing that was amazing to me was just to realize that this book came out, I think it was uh, June 8th, 1949, and within two months, I think it was August, uh, there was a uh, an adaptation for radio already. The NBC um, University series, I think it was called, or University Theater, already, as of uh, uh, August 27th, 1949, was putting on a 38-minute version of uh, 1984. So it, it was... 
it, I, I don't know if it was necessarily a hit, but it made a splash and it just was really kind of gobbled up by the media and, and just the, the way that it was. Um, I think there was a lot of dis- dissatisfaction with the way that things were headed. I mean, we're um, still a few years out from Eisenhower and his military industrial complex speech, but it seems like stuff was kind of written on the on the wind here as far as where we were headed with some of these things and we had seen we had just witnessed the these horrible dictatorships happening in in Italy and in Germany and we're still seeing a horrible dictatorship that we won't really I think necessarily know how horrible the dictatorship of Stalin is until a few years after uh, this happens because Stalin was so good at kind of controlling the image and controlling the media but you know the this that the satisfaction is definitely out there and it's no coincidence we'll be talking in the second half of the show uh, about all of the other adaptations that 1984 went through and so many of them all take place during the early 50s it's just remarkable to have adaptation after adaptation of this same story happening and i was surprised that there wasn't a bigger budget version of this that happened until 1984 but i mean your marketing campaign is built in right it's like i saw on posters for this uh for redford's version it was like the movie of the year and i was like <laughs> literally oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like when they did the omen remake only to release it so that they could have a 666 date to release it on june 6 2006 Which is like brilliant. yeah that date built in you what's wrong with you if you don't make a movie that year <laughs> Do you know that people missed that on Jeopardy the other night? I was they actually curious. asked that question. Yes. How? <laughs> as soon as I see the category with scary movies, I'm like, okay, we got this. And then as soon as I see the date, I'm like, yep, the omen. And then the other idiots didn't get it. And then we judged them harshly when we watched Jeopardy. A remake of this scary movie was released on June 6, 2006, 30 years to the day after the release of the original. Trevor, we come to you first. You came up with The Exorcist. Good film. Wrong response. It'll cost you. Stupid, smart people on Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if people aren't aware of what 1984 is, let's, let's talk a little bit about the plot here, because we start off with uh, our, our boy Winston, Winston Smith, who in the Radford film is portrayed by John Hurt. And I think Hurt is probably one of the best people to play this character because he's got, well, he's got or had acting chops like nobody's business. And he's got that great physique. I mean, the whole thing is these people are starving. They're not healthy. I mean, they describe in the book quite often this uh, sore that he has on his leg and that it just it, it never heals. It's always there. And him, you know, having to walk up the steps at his uh, his to his flat because the elevator never works. The you know, the the neighbor across the hallway, her husband uh, isn't around to fix the sink. The sink's always getting backed up because of all their kids and just just the how the it's 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 basically squalor that they're yep. living in but aren't they happy because they get uh what 25 grams of chocolate uh, every month which, is, which has been uh raised right it was yeah oh, previously yeah. it was lower yeah and john hurt is he's so good and he's so perfectly cast because he when he i mean he passed away recently which was very unfortunate but i think everybody was shocked when they found out how old he was 
because I think he's kind of like a Max von Sydow, where we all always assumed he was so much older because he could play older so well. And so him as Winston Smith, he he can look so sickly when he has to. And it's he's perfect. And I don't want to jump ahead, but it's one of the biggest issues I had with the other big screen adaptation where the actor they cast as Winston is essentially every physical aspect of John Hurt. Think of the opposite. And that's who they had as Winston. And it didn't work, I thought. Yeah, plus it's really hard when you see... John Hurt in the role first, and then you go back and you watch some of the other adaptations. It just, even seeing Peter Cushing, who to me can do no wrong, it was just like, not that those versions are bad. I just missed him in the role because he's so perfect in it. Yeah, he is. Well, and he carries so much of the world in his eyes. And I, I forgot when I was just re watching this again this afternoon, I forgot that there is a voiceover to this because it, it's just used so spare and it's used so perfectly. And you're just, you're inside of Hertz head already, just because he draws you in with his eyes, draws you in with his face. And so then when he does that voiceover, it just feels so intimate already. It feels like we're with him so much of the time already that it doesn't feel like it is this, you know, and then I went to the, you know, community flat and I saw Julia for the first time. Here's Harrison Ford to narrate the story of Blade Runner. (laughs) That's That's what I thought of today was the weird parallels with Blade Runner and just how different the voiceover is. Plus, he just has such a beautiful voice. Oh, he does. Yeah. Yeah, this is that world. This is that, that I mean, because with Blade Runner, people have moved to the off-world colonies. There is no off-world colony, unfortunately, with this. But the world is turning to that, that uh, I'm trying to remember what the word Philip K. Dick uh, used. Um, uh, kibble, I think. I, I can't remember what it was, but basically... Uh, falling into entropy and the sets i mean god the setting for this film is fantastic as well it just everything looks bombed out the colors that they use i know that they kind of oversaturated some things to just kind of make it look worse than it was but it looks terrible it just the, the world best is a of ways yeah. yes it's so yeah, I mean, beautiful. it looks like the blitz and then they kind of rebuilt from it only they rebuilt it as the soviet union and it's perfect it's all iron and concrete and none of the buildings have any artistic beauty to them and it's it's perfect it's exactly what it should be especially in that year especially in that decade i mean i i can't imagine that people would see the film and not make that association to the soviet union and imagine that that's what life was like well, yeah, because it feels like the world stopped. It feels like the world literally stopped in 1948, 1949, and we're still using the rotary telephones. The televisions aren't even in color. They're just kind of in sepia tone. I, it just It's amazing the look of this stuff. I mean, this is um, – and I, I hate to use the term steampunk because it's not steampunk, but it kind of has that flavor of uh, an Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Something that is completely out of time. uh. Yeah, it's like an alternate timeline. Yeah. And how hard it must have been to resist the urge to futurize it. 
Because you're thinking, I mean, you're what, just two years out of Blade Runner, and by 1984, you're also like post-Star Wars. You're in this age when when you say sci-fi and you say kind of the future, film audiences are probably expecting something really big and neon and flying cars and all this stuff that you could have put in here if you chose to, but there was absolutely no reason to, and... Uh, I know we'll talk about the score at one point because I feel like that's the only thing that dates this as an as a movie that came out of the eighties. Because otherwise, you could look at this and believe it was made in almost any decade. Absolutely, which is strange and magical. So Winston is a worker at the Ministry of Truth, at one of the four ministries that uh, pretty much run the entire country. Now, we're, we're not necessarily calling it England in here. We're calling it, what, Airstrip One, I think is what they yeah. refer to it, as part of Oceania, which is the the larger country overall. And basically, there are three countries which allegedly are uh, running the world and fighting with one another, but there is this whole idea of constant warfare, and we are always at war with somebody. This is not applicable to our time at all, by the way. <laughs> not at <No>. all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as we're like not even a week out from the mother of all bombs going to uh, Afghanistan and air raids on Syria, no, there is nothing that yeah, can constant be Constant threats wrong. of North Korea, yeah, yeah. nope, nope. No, no parallels whatsoever. No, I don't even want to know what's going to have happened by the time this episode goes live. Jeez, oh, it's a very good point. Hopefully, there will still be people here to listen. <laughs> to it. That's horrible. Don't we may all us. be vaporized. The aliens will receive this message from us. Hopefully, so. Don't blame me. I voted for Kodos. Go. And who knows if they're even at war with these other countries because it's always being fought on a distant front someplace. And the the whole thing, too, is the allegiances shift. You know, Winston's job, the, the way that Orwell made this, that he wrote this, really does a great job of putting Winston there in this position where he is a rewriter of history. And he seems to be either the only person who kind of realizes what he's doing or the only person that cares about what he's doing so his job constantly is getting these missives from someplace via the pneumatic tubes i love pneumatic tubes <laughs> getting these messages and basically having to rewrite newspapers there are divisions inside of uh, the ministry of truth where they revise uh, encyclopedias where they revise radio shows where they revise films uh, television shows i imagine and so his job is to go through through newspapers and uh, excise anything that doesn't fit with the political, with the party line, and uh, basically pre present the world with alternative facts. Which is just terrifying. And it, I mean, ties in so much with a lot of the, the stuff that Goebbels was doing in Nazi Germany. And it's obviously, it wasn't quite as large of a production as what's going on in the book, but it was the beginning of that for sure. Things were so carefully controlled and edited and rewritten. It's horrifying. Yeah. And even on Orwell's end, I think from um, some of the documentaries and some reading about him, he had worked during World War II, he had worked for the BBC, essentially in their propaganda unit, where he was doing writing radio broadcasts that 
he knew were not always true, but that they were all about boosting public morale or making sure the public kind of stayed at a certain level of anger or enthusiasm or whatever they needed them to be. And that also, I think, influenced him in, you know, looking at that other side of it where uh, it's, yeah, I mean, he worked in propaganda, just, you know, in good propaganda, as, as far as I'm sure uh, he was told it was. Well, I mean, this was the problem with a lot of those propaganda units, both in England and even in Hollywood, where there was this sort of sense that you couldn't argue against them and you couldn't argue against any, like, film censorship because you knew that it was sort of for the greater good. The greater good. Which... I think is just as bad. There is an amazing book uh, out there, and I'm trying to remember the title of it, about um, speaking of Hollywood and censorship. There There were policies in place for a long time where movies couldn't criticize Hitler because they were going to lose that market, that German market, and then eventually all of the other markets that Germany controlled. (laughs) And it is just amazing to read that, to, to realize that for so many years, because we always think like, oh, yeah, we were there with the war effort and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, no, 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 we no. We were not. <laughs> no, definitely not. 1936, 37, 38, 39. So many of these early years of, of Hitler, nobody's saying jack yeah. shit. We might know that stuff is going on, but nobody is definitely out there putting out this, you know, the the what should be the right message and saying Hitler's bad because no, no, God forbid we lose that market. Well, and then the yeah. same thing essentially happened with Stalin during and right after the war because, I mean, we know Stalin did very bad things to very many people and it took quite a while for, at least in the United States, for anybody to say that out loud because, you know, at the time Soviet Union was still an ally and wasn't that why um, what that was the whole part point of Animal Farm, which is why it wasn't published for a few years, because it was Orwell's way of criticizing the Soviet Union and saying, hey, these are going to be our allies, but they're doing some bad shit. And England didn't necessarily want the people to think about that at the time. Which is just frightening. I mean, and it's it's not that, you know, we've revised our own history by saying that, you know, we were against Hitler the whole time, but it's like a mild revision because like you were, like you both were just saying it, it seems like it took a few years for people to be allowed to say these things that everyone knew were true. I mean, in terms of the whole like world war two censorship issue, I don't think it was until like 1940, maybe 1939 that people started making movies overtly against Hitler. And, you weren't allowed to use the word Jew in a lot of those early films. Like Chaplin was one of the first people who did that and just received a firestorm of criticism. (laughs) And it's just baffling now. Well, and nowadays they don't say the word Jew when they're talking about the Holocaust on what remembrance day. So full circle Once again, here we are. (laughs) Here we are laughing and crying at the same time. Pretty much, pretty much. 
Well, and it's no coincidence that the enemy of the people is Emmanuel Goldstein, <laughs> this person that they prop up to be, you know, the the person to boo. They have this ritual that they do. It seems like they do it every day at work. This two minutes hate, uh, which would not to be confused with Hate Week, by the way. It's <laughs> a whole festival of hate that they do. But the two minutes hate is basically this cathartic exercise that they do to. Uh, Hate on Goldstein, hate on either Eurasia or East Asia, whoever we're being told is the enemy at the time, not our ally, but our enemy. And that switches throughout the story, which is a, a fantastic thing. And then, um, and then eventually, you know, uh, start chanting BB for Big Brother when that comes about. And I love this thing that they're doing in the movie, in Redford's movie, where they hold up their arms over their heads. Yes. So it's not necessarily the Nazi salute. It's this other type of salute, but the way that they hold their hands up over their head is basically looks like their hands are tied, which is a really nice kind of metaphor for what they are experiencing in their real life. And they just are there chanting and then moving their fists back and forth with their hands over their head like that. And just, basking in the glory of big brother it's such a great image and the radford film opens with it it opens with a hate uh, two minutes hate and it is just such an effective way to get you into that world immediately and i think something too is once you watch it and as you watch it and then when as you go back to it what's great is when you look at the faces of everybody doing that and Everybody, like, sort of looks the same. Everybody's white. They're all kind of, you know, dowdy, either men or women. But that once you kind of know what's really going on in some of the characters' heads, you start to wonder as you watch, oh, I wonder if that guy is also thinking, I hate Big Brother. I wonder if this guy is. I wonder if this woman is. And, I mean, you know, for all you know, no, they're all totally in line with the party. But I like that because it's such a emotional thing where you can feel Julia letting all of it out and you know what's really going on, it kind of kind of opens it up where you start to wonder about everybody when you see that. It's interesting, too, that we see O'Brien first. It seems like Winston is one of the last characters that we see as they're going through there, but they really focus in on O'Brien, which makes sense. I mean, Richard Burton right. was probably more well-known at the time than John Hurt. John Hurt had obviously done... Um, Elephant Man at this time, uh, and Alien, but he's under a ton of makeup for for, uh, Elephant Man, and he's unfortunately dead by the end of the first act in Alien. But they they did a good job of focusing in on Burton and the way that different he's looking at different characters, other characters are looking at him. And it's all that, I mean, it's amazing to think that this whole movie kind of turns, well, I think they would have uh, gotten Winston anyway, but the way that he has this secret hope that O'Brien is with him, and he kind of is, and he kind of isn't at the same time, and just that, the way that he really likes O'Brien and wants to be O'Brien's pal and the way that he hates Julia and wants to smash her skull in with a rock and the way that those relationships flip uh, is a really smart way of, of, of giving us some good tension in this uh, in the book and in the film. And I love how Richard Burton's portrayal of him is so different than the other adaptations and the other adaptations it's clear. I mean, Michael Redgrave, you take one look at him and you're like, you better run away because he's going to murder your entire family. <laughs> like he, he looks like a villain. 
And he's great in that particular envisioning of the role, but Richard Burton's character just, or Richard Burton's portrayal of that character just gives it so much more depth and ambiguity that I love. You really want to believe that he's part of the resistance. You really do. And even after you watch five film adaptations and read the book, you just still think there's like a kernel of hope that maybe, maybe. And here's a question I've always had, because it's the line that I think they use in almost every adaptation when, you know, Winston discovers O'Brien's real identity. And, you know, he says, oh, my God, they got you, too. And his response, they got me a long time ago. Do you think he at one point did try to resist and, you know, kind of went through room 101 and everything else? Or was he just, no, they got me because I always knew this was the side I was on. Just something I've always wondered. Well, it kind of ties back into what you were saying about the opening scene where you look at people's faces and you wonder about them. And I think he's a strong example of that. There's two things that come to mind when I think about that. One is there's a line, I I can't remember if it's in the book and the movie or just the book, where they talk about Goldstein's book. Because uh, at one point, uh, O'Brien gives Winston this book, which is written by Emmanuel Goldstein. And in one of those, he says, I helped write that book. I don't know if that was a, a metaphorical thing or if that was a literal thing. The other thing that comes to mind is that whole idea of no one is as Christian as a born-again Christian. And it seems like he is a true believer. It seems like he might have undergone that whole thing and really uh, you know, just adopted it completely and knows the way to get to Winston the same way that he was gotten to. But I'm not sure if you can be that that much of a true believer and uh, you know if if you could have not been a true believer at some point and still be a member of the inner party or if just the inner party i mean the inner party where o'brien sits and where they have these you know this whole clandestine where they um, have coffee yes where they have real coffee <laughs> real coffee in every one of the, uh, the adaptations that is referenced <laughs> and wine they love to drink their wine too and it seems like, uh, I, I wonder if you are just born into the inner party or if you ever become a member of the inner party. It seems like that is such a small group of people. Well, especially because it's not like uh, diligence and skill is rewarded because it's not in all the adaptations, but it's in the book and it's in a few of them. It's Donald Pleasance's character in one of one of the versions that he's in, where there's the other character that works in the Ministry of Truth And at some point he disappears and Winston realizes, oh, they killed him. He became an unperson because he was too smart, even though he supported the party and he totally was in line with the party doctrine. He was just too intelligent and was probably doing things in a way that they realized that he could eventually be a threat. So they just vaporize him. So I would think it has to be that you're kind of born in just... Because otherwise, it seems, especially the other thing, too, my favorite part that's also in most of the adaptations is when we meet the children that are being groomed for the thought police. And it just seems like your inner party is going to stay as small as it can be and that there's very little upward mobility because the only way you know, to be successful is to follow everything that you're told and how can you really advance at a certain point. Which has horrifying parallels to today yet again. 
when I think about like jingoism and just the over dedication to stuff, I always think of that mental image of Homer Simpson when he's there going USA, 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 USA. How he'll use that to just like shut people down for no reason. And then the the other day at the end of one of Trump's tweets, he said USA at all caps with an exclamation part and mark. And I was just like, oh, my God, he's Homer Simpsoning. <laughs> Pretty much. And I can see those kids, those Parsons kids doing the exact same thing. Those kids are fucking terrifying. They are. They are. I love them. They're horrible. I want a spinoff movie just of them. I don't know why nobody's done it. Why have you got this desk so far away from the telly screen? It ought to be over there. There's something in what she says, you know. She doesn't miss a thing. I'll have to report you. Nonsense, Selena, nonsense. Winston has nothing to hide. Have you, Winston? No, they remind me kind of of Sam and Eric from uh, Lord of the Flies, where it's these kids who just seem to thrive on hate. They kind of remind me of Todd and Rod, again, going back to the Simpsons. (laughs) I followed a man the other day, and I turned him into the police. Well, why did you do that? He looked like a foreigner. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> We're <Yeah>. almost there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, when, you know, Muhammad Ali's kid is being stopped at the airport multiple times and he can't come back in the country multiple times. Yes. It's like, come on. It's like the political version of Village of the Damned. <laughs> or like that Twilight Zone episode. I'm going to wish you to the cornfield. Oh, <laughs> it's good. That you did that. It's real good. Yeah, and that's kind of what it feels like. I mean, because Parsons eventually is turned in for for talking in his sleep. Yes, which yeah. is and you so horrifying. Actually, you really wonder if he was or not. And again, it's one right. of those things that maybe doesn't matter, but it really makes me think. Because A, if he was, how interesting that is that, oh, this character that seemed to, and seems even when he's being tortured, to really, really love Big Brother and want to love Big Brother so that the idea that, oh, maybe deep down he didn't, or that his little bastard kids were that awful that they were that they just decided to report their dad because they could. Either right. way, it's I, I think interesting in, in either direction. No, that's what I assumed, that he was basically, he being Orwell, was basically trying to say there's no one here who does it right in a way that can keep them safe. So even people who are really smart, like we were talking about earlier, or who work hard, or who are really loyal, like no one is safe. There's pretty much nobody in the book who has a name who isn't either working for the party, like O'Brien and eventually Charrington, or who doesn't end up in the Ministry of Love, uh, uh, who's going to be tortured. Right. Yeah. Other than the proles, and most of the proles don't have names. I mean, really, there's the old man at the bar. I don't know if he ever has a name. Right, because it doesn't matter in, you know, in the world of 1984. The thought is, well, the proles are never going to mobilize. They're not smart enough. They don't have the resources. We keep them just we keep them distracted. We keep them from unifying. So, you know, they're the life force of the country. They're the ones doing the labor. They're the ones making the things we need. But as long as we just keep them apart from ever, you know, getting any ideas in their head, it's fine. They don't matter. They can, you know, they can be prostitutes or they can do things that are against the party rules and we don't have to do anything because they're not a threat to the party. When I like that, I don't want to call it cognitive dissonance because we'll get into that later on, but that whole idea of them 
chafing a little bit under some of the things that the party has done, like the whole idea of changing pints into leaders that really makes that old man very angry. And the whole idea, too, there's they're having an argument in the bar about um, – and again, this might be – I think this is more book than movie – but having an argument in the bar as far as lottery numbers and how often these particular lottery numbers come up. And the one guy's like, no, no, I keep the newspapers. I know all of these numbers. You can't tell me how often they come up. And it's just like, okay, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this particular poll gets vaporized because you're not supposed to keep newspapers. You shouldn't have any sort of record. They should go right down the memory hole. It's all fake news anyway. It happens. I watched it happen. I saw it happen. Don't tell me it didn't happen. Which is so distasteful. (laughs) It's worse to watch now than it was the first time I watched it. (laughs) So much worse. I like that Winston isn't a saint either. You know, the the stories of his youth, the stories of him basically taking food away from his sister because his family is starving, but he's, he's taking food right out of her mouth. The way that he takes that piece of chocolate and runs away when he comes back up, they're not there anymore. I mean, it's just, he's, he's not the best character in the world. And I think that's what we need. We don't need a saint. I think Orwell works hard to do that, to establish Winston as he is not your hero. He is not going to save the world. And just the the very fact that very early in the book, his physical description is sickly and weak and limping and all of this stuff so that you're not expecting him to be this grand martyr and why it's where like some of the films work in their casting and some don't. And like we said, John Hurt is perfect because, you know, he's not your leading man and you don't expect him to save the world. Whereas, and I think similar with, I mean, we I don't know if we're talking about all the various versions we watched, but in some, I think having a more handsome Winston, I think really hurts it. I totally agree. I mean, we'll we'll talk more about this later, but I think Cushing is as close to it as we get because he is so gaunt. And I, I mean, I love Peter Cushing, but I can't necessarily say he was a handsome, handsome person. I mean, and John Hurt can be handsome and Peter Cushing can be handsome, but in these roles, they are not allowed to be. They're not allowing themselves to be. And I think that that's exactly what this role needed. We needed to see him look as bad as he looks, especially later on when he is undergoing torture. He looks terrible. And because he does during his when he's in love, when he's kind of briefly enjoying life, he does look better. He does look healthier. He does, you know, I don't know if they deliberately like took off some of the maybe patches on his skin that they had given him in makeup, but he he does have that, you know, when somebody's in love and they have a glow, you see that. And then again, it makes for such a change later when you see both him and Julia after the fact, and they are different people physically. Yeah. And I think they do a really great, or he does a really great job. We we mentioned his eyes earlier and how powerful they are. And I think the shift, it, for me, I didn't even notice if there was a makeup change, but the shift is his eyes look so dead. They yeah. they look relatively dead in the first act. And of course, you know, just horrifyingly dead in the third act. But when they're together, he he spends a lot of time listening to that woman singing and staring out the window. And he has this sort of dreamy look where he doesn't actually look hopeful, but it gives you a sense of hope that like, 
even though the world is so dour and, you know, if you have ever read the novel, you know where it's going, but he just is so great at conveying that sense of maybe this could be a different world. It's heartbreaking. It really is. We have touched upon the love story because there is a love story that happens in here. And I will say that sometimes I think it's more of a matter of convenience than actual romance, I guess, because it comes about fairly suddenly. It is Julia passes Winston a note, Julia, who's another member of the outer party, and Julia, who hides what she is with this red sash. And I love that. Well, and this is the only color version of this story that we've seen (laughs) over the last couple weeks and that red sash really comes through it is just such a mark of her difference and also her disdain and it is supposed to mark that she is part of the anti-sex league because one of the things that they really play up in the uh, radford version which i appreciate that doesn't get played into some of these others is the whole idea of the um, abolishment of the orgasm. And that is something that uh, O'Brien talks about in the book is that they are trying to eliminate that. They don't want people to have pleasure because if you have pleasure, you're not thinking about the party. You're not following orders. You're going out there for your own hedonistic desires. Let's abolish the orgasm. And we can do that by, by making a point of pride. And here's Julia with her big red sash around her saying like, look, but don't touch boys. And yeah, she passes Winston this note they start to have this surreptitious relationship. And I don't know if it's necessarily that if they do love one another. And I think there are times in the book where Winston basically admits that he doesn't necessarily love this other woman, but to have someone else that he can talk to. And that's the the biggest thing is Winston feels so alone in the world because he really feels like he's the only person who's sane in an insane world. And I think that's also one of the reasons why he really hopes that O'Brien is a compatriot so that just that he has somebody to talk to. Yeah. With the, I I mean, I think it's one of those, what is love? If you want to (laughs) say, because they true, like they, you know, she has never spoken a word to him but she hands him a note saying, I love you. And, you know, he kind of says, why? And it's another case where it's it's interesting how the adaptations handle it because they make such a big deal that he's older than her and she's, you know, young and beautiful, but in a world where being beautiful maybe doesn't really mean anything if, you know, you're not supposed to necessarily pair up with people in a sexual way. And I, I think it does start as convenience on both of their ends for different reasons, right? Because she says, you know, instantly I've done this, or he says, have you done this before? And she's like, yes, of course I have. And for him, you get the feeling that he really hasn't ever since his wife. And that's kind of an, an odd little subplot that doesn't, that I almost wish the movies didn't involve because in the book, it kind of makes sense that he was married, um, but what was it? They couldn't have kids. And then they were kind of then the tide turned where people shouldn't be having kids. But it kind of always gets very messy to me in all the adaptations because it just seems like it's a detail you can't explain in the time you have. And it doesn't matter. So just get rid of the wife. Just pretend he's never been married. When they kind of first get together, I think it is just I had a feeling about you. You had a feeling about me. And I mean, I think they fall in love, but not necessarily in a way where 
you know, in a different world, they would be happily married and have 10 kids and be together forever. I think in this context, they've kind of found someone that can give them this feeling of life and they know they're doomed from the beginning. One of my favorite things, like compared to some of the other dystopian novels, one of my favorite things is the love story because for whatever reason, I, growing up, I read a wide variety of books, but I've always had trouble engaging with romance stories. And I think what made me love this so much is that whereas other stories like, you know, everything from Romeo and Juliet to Pride and Prejudice just felt so implausible to me because I never understood why the two characters come together. And here he's not asking you to try to understand. He's sort of telling you that it's not necessarily like you were saying, not necessarily something that would lead to a stable lasting relationship, but it's about this desperate need for intimacy. And it's also about, I think love as sort of a political act rather than a personal one which is so powerful, but makes it so, so much more gutting. I don't know if their love is genuine, and who am I to judge? Their love story, to your point, feels much more genuine than uh, so many other love stories where you have a man and you have a woman, so they're going to have to fall in love somehow. You know, we don't care how, but you know, it, it feels much more of a true love story than... I don't know, like a brave new world or something. Yes. It feels more genuine than, than that, where it's just like, and of course, you know, <laughs> Winston Smith is no, I, I can't remember the, the hero of brave new world, but he's not that guy. He's not like the tanned wild guy coming in <laughs> from the outside. This is a member of the outer party. Who's just the schlubby little, like I said at the beginning, cog in a wheel. There's, Something weirdly, and this is another reason I think John Hurt is so perfect for the role. He might not be this sort of classic, you know, romantic leading man, but there's something so beautiful about him, even when he's has these huge bags under his eyes and he's so scrawny, that it makes it a little bit easier to understand why she's drawn to him. I can agree with that. And I think that they never um, approach it in a way where they're trying to to sell it as this grand love story. It's very matter of fact. It's I want to have sex with you. I want to I want to take your clothes off. I want to do things to you that the party doesn't want me to do because they're dirty. And so it's not you know Romeo and Juliet, you're the most beautiful one I've ever seen. It's very much I hate the world and I think you do and that's why I'm attracted to you. So it Which takes that sort of yeah, that like fluffy this is the grandest love story of, you know, of Oceana. No, it's not. It's just these two people who are very aware that the only reason they're together is, you know, because of these, this situation and they've kind of think they have this in common and the entire time they know, well, we know it's not going to last. We know we're going to, I, we know that we're going to betray each other as soon as we have the chance to, because that's what you have to do. Those posters for this movie where it's them embracing each other, just like, oh, that, nope. I mean, I know you have to do that in the poster, but. It's like the near dark just, poster that tried to be Twilight. Yeah. Oh, it's like, no, that doesn't really work, but okay. Not only are they playing it up, this whole idea of her being the younger woman, him being the older man, but then that also sets up some really interesting uh, discussions as far as. Him being of the age where he remembers what the world was like before Big Brother. But, you know, he 
cares about things. He cares about some of these lies like Big Brother invented the airplane. You know, some of these things that the party is trying to feed them, whereas she is from a different generation and she doesn't care about that. She has her own way of rebelling and sometimes he doesn't understand it. Sometimes she doesn't understand him. I mean, when he is there reading Goldstein's book and, um, you know, she just basically doesn't care. She falls asleep while he's reading it. Whereas with him, he is finally seeing this thing that is, is, um, solidifying all of these thoughts that he already had and just saying them in a much more concise way and kind of, you know, it, it's not telling him anything that he didn't already know or suspect in his heart, but he's able to finally have somebody again have this other voice tell you, no, you're not crazy. This is the way that the world really is. And that's the kind of stuff that for, for me, and I would imagine for you two as well, I feel like I'm in a fun house so much of the time in the world. Like when I see these headlines and things and just like, um, am I going crazy or is the world nuts? And that's, I think the feeling that Winston has, you know, times a thousand, but just because he's there actually removing those, those instances of like, you know, Hey, these three guys that you said, uh, you know, bomb this thing. Well, there's a picture of them in New York when they're said to have been bombing this stuff over in Russia. So it doesn't really make sense. You know, he's got the, the goods on this or he's seen the goods on it. And he's the only one that seems to remember it. Like when suddenly they change that Oceania is now fighting East Asia when it used to be uh, Eurasia, he seems to be the only one who remembers or cares. And he is unable to do that whole principle of double think that we kind of alluded to earlier, where you can take two completely different ideas put them in your head at the same time, know that one is a lie and be able to accept it. Well, here's the scary thing that I didn't think of now that you said that, that I, with the way Winston is still, still cares and it still kind of wants to know that the world isn't supposed to be this way. And Julia is a younger generation. She's, I think supposed to be about 10, 15 years younger than him. And so is her kind of lack of, political agency or of any real care of changing the world is that just because of who she is is it because she's a woman or is it because she's a little younger and that whole generation kind of resigned themselves to say okay we know some of this kind of sucks and we're going to rebel but we're not going to change anything and then the next generation down that we see represented are the little kids who are purely you know mini nazis in the making ratting out their parents no i definitely got that out of it that sort of maybe not that her generation doesn't care but that she doesn't have that contrast and I think that sort of reminded me a little bit of the relationship in Brave New World where it's like this one character who knows the difference and this other character who doesn't know the difference and they have this sort of intuitive sense that something is wrong with the way things are but they can't verbalize it they can't make sense of it because they just don't have the life experience well not only do they not have the life experience but now they are missing the language and i think that's one of the greatest things about 1984 is the whole idea of new speak and removing words from a a vocabulary so that i think it's sime is the guy that you mentioned earlier the guy who's so into 
newspeak and is almost too smart and too verbose about it to the point where he gets vaporized. But him talking about by 2050, and I love that they give the date in there, by 2050, you wouldn't even understand the conversation that we're having today. And the whole idea of thought crime won't even be possible because there won't be the words for it. And I think that (laughs) Julia might be kind of a victim of that, not even being able to express what is going on because she might not even have the words for everything. Maybe that's why her first words are, I love you. That could be. She might not say, I have a very strong feeling about you and I would really like to, you know, do whatever because she doesn't have that because pretty soon you're not going to have all of the synonyms anymore for all of these different feelings. You're going to have, what was it? One word, right? Good. You're going to have plus good, double plus good, ungood and double plus ungood. And that's it. No shades. Otherwise, I'm very highly educated. I know words. I have the best words. Yeah, because even the, you know, proletariat pornography, it's written by machines. It's just putting words together. Oh, God, that's Which creepy. Is, uh, it's, it's so <laughs> creepy. And I think, you know, obviously this came from his experience, like we were talking about earlier, working in a censorship office and also his experience as a writer. But it just, it's so encapsulates a life under a totalitarian regime where all the gray area is stripped away and everything is these sort of extremes of black and white. And there's no, like you lose what's in the middle. Not only is the pornography written by machines, but I love that the popular songs are written by machines. (laughs) Yes. It's so awful. (laughs) And again, not applicable to our times. No, 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 no. I didn't think those lines, did you ever feel like a plastic bag as (laughs) that was happening? I didn't think that. I swear I didn't think that, Katy Perry. (laughs) That would be a thought crime. Remember, I I mean, I remember because I had already read the book, but in 2000 when they announced all these reality shows and one of them coming out was called Big Brother. And it was a thing. Oh my God, that's a TV show that's been out for 15 years now. It seems fake. Like reality seems fake. I mean, (laughs) Well, yeah, especially when you watch those quote unquote reality shows and you're just like, God, this is all scripted, you know, and I mean, to not only hear from the people that actually make these shows and find out that they, yes, they are scripted, but then when you watch some of them, some of them do a fair job of obfuscating that and others is just like written by computer, basically. I'm not here to make friends. Line? Okay, got it. When I watch any of those shows, I always look at what outfits people are wearing, and then I always try to figure out when was this B-roll footage shot? When were these quote-unquote confessions shot? And there were times watching Survivor, which was my one of my favorites, where I'm seeing people and they would still have like makeup on them because of like they would take sometimes they would paint their faces when they would go to challenges and they would have makeup still on them and then they're talking about things that have yet to happen and I'm or or that it was yeah that have yet to happen in the episode I'm just like how are you talking about this when that has uh, yeah and just it, it would drive me nuts thinking about the timeline of these things yeah I can't handle any of that it. There is definitely that weird sort of vocabulary, like a set vocabulary that you have to use with all those reality shows where it seems like no one is having conversations that people have in the real world. <laughs> like on the real world? Yes. I was actually, I was going to say, so I don't really watch a lot of TV and I haven't seen a lot of reality shows, but 
the real world was on when I was in high school. So that was my first glimpse of like, I think maybe the first season I watched and was like, okay, this seems, I guess, like an interesting experiment. And then the more movies I watched, I realized like, no, (laughs) this is all scripted. (laughs) Yeah. Those, those first shows that were out there and then even going back and comparing them to like, you know, mockumentaries and like comparing, um, Oh, I'm trying to remember the the Loud Family, whatever show that they were on, comparing that to like what Albert Brooks would do uh, a couple of years later, skewering that show. It's just like, <laughs> wow. Yeah, the, here we are in the 70s already doing the show and the parody of the show. And then 20 years later, it's just like, oh, yeah, wow, reality television. It's this brand new thing. It's like, mm, no. no. Yeah. And it's I mean, I hate to say this, but it's a long way from Grey Gardens. <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I don't think about to say it, but <laughs> now I'm imagining like 19, the world of 1984, and because we don't really see what else we see on the telescreen. Like we know there is, you know, the daily workouts and the two minute hates. But do you think they have reality programming on the telescreen in 1984? And wouldn't it be really boring? Yes, but it would all be. I could very, very clearly imagine that, especially if somebody made an adaptation, say, now. But it would all be ways that you're supposed to live your life. Or the best reality show is what they show on TV. It is all of the live hangings and executions. True. true. Yeah, it's a very yeah. good point. Yeah, some exciting things do happen. Just not happy ones. Well, I guess depending on your perspective. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, the kids really enjoy the hangings, so. The telescreen, you know, we haven't really even talked about it that much, but the telescreen, of course, the big thing, like, you know, when I first heard about um, 1984, I was like, oh, my God, the television watches you. And this is before Kelly <laughs> oh. Conway was talking about microwaves watching people. But that was the big <laughs> thing. But I think the scarier thing about the telescreen is that you can't turn it off. Only certain party members can turn it off. And then it totally is a 24-hour news cycle. I mean, it basically predates CNN by however many decades. And it's just like, wow. I mean, I'm sure that there were radio shows that were somewhat similar, but in 1949, and I don't think there were 24-hour news channels in 1949. And this seems like... When I'm at work and I go past the uh, the lounge on the second floor, CNN is on, and I don't even know if you can change the channel. And that's all it's on is just constantly. You go to any bar in the in the city, and there's sports on certain channels, and then there's you know Fox or MSNBC constantly on, and is just it so reminds me of that you know those scenes in winston's apartment where it is just constantly giving updates of figures and facts and all of these things all of the party news all the time i know someone who works for the cia and so i had a conversation with them just sort of about what they thought of the surveillance in the book as like when it came out and then the 1984 movie, they were like, honestly, there's nothing that we can really talk. Like there's nothing I could tell you that you don't know because all of the surveillance and like the TV screens and everything in the movie, it's, it's now, you know, you go to Best Buy and buy all of it. I was like, that's so much worse. (laughs) (laughs) So much worse than I thought you were going to say. 
well, yeah, now when you watch CSI or any of those shows and they're like, oh, yeah, there's a closed circuit TV two blocks away. Let's see what kind of picture we can get on it. It's like, oh, okay. I accepted that. Like, I always kind of felt like I know, okay, anything, you know, if I go online and go to one website, the next website I go is giving me ads back to that other website. I kind of, you know, I, I, I'm cool with that because I think there is a certain point where you can't you know, you can't let go anymore. We know that we're always being watched or monitored or so on. But that never bothered me because, you know, even if I'm, you know, making political statements or making jokes or something, it never seemed like, you know, I I live in the United States where we still have a First Amendment stuff. And, you know, now in this day and age, it starts to get to the point where you wonder now, am I being put on a list? (laughs) Right. Yeah, and which is horrifying. Yeah, exactly. Well, and when the few things that we have that are protecting our privacy from being sold to, you know, the highest bidder are just crumbling around right. us, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same way. The moment, the scariest moment of all the horrible things that happen in Radford's 1984, the scariest moment for me is when the television talks to Winston yes. and when that. Mm-hmm horrible woman comes out and tells him you should be able to touch your toes and look at me i've had two kids and i can touch my toes and it's just like fuck off (laughs) as somebody who's been struggling with my weight for my entire life i don't need this person coming and telling me well you should be able to do that it's like, oh man! So that's the worst moment in the whole. Yeah, movie. I, I do workout videos sometimes, and I talk back to them the entire time. If Jillian Michaels ever yes. then like stopped, Emily do a push up, I would probably pee myself because that would be horrifying. I would probably have a stroke. Yeah, I mean, then, I might like, have a stroke anyway doing some of those. <laughs> It's always remarkable to me that the entire third, last third of the book and essentially of the movie are Winston's re-education. And, of course, that becomes the most troubling part of this whole thing is just to see him, see our, our hero, as much of a hero as he is. And we've talked about how he's not that much of a hero, but to see him suffer and be broken and to hear o'brien in this paternal tone and just he wants winston to understand you know just please come on like come with me you know like uh, the the whole idea of winston even seeing the future i mean there there's that whole thing where winston has this dream and he hears O'Brien's voice say, we shall meet in the place where there is no darkness. And to Winston in his initial dream, it's this place that they refer to sometimes as the golden country. It's this beautiful outdoor landscape where there are trees and things are green and the color, the colors actually look kind of normal compared to the rest of the film, which is this kind of weird desaturated tone. Oh yeah. The look of that and, and the contrast is so brilliant. And him finally realizing, I don't think they necessarily make the point in the movie as much as they do in the book, but when he gets to the Ministry of Love, there is no darkness. He doesn't know if it's day or night. He is constantly, they never turn off the lights. It is 24 hours of light. He never knows if it's day, if it's night, if he's in the basement, if he's on the 10th level, the 100th level. 
they meet again in the place where there is no darkness and he never is even able to close his eyes unless they shoot him up with something and probably sodium pentothal or whatever to help his transition from this flawed human being that he is until they burn out the they they cauterize the wrong parts of him and make him into the ideal party member it's so nauseating i mean i also i have to wonder so that that whole thing of never turning the lights out and disorienting someone is a pretty standard brainwashing technique. And I'm wondering how much of that, like Orwell would have drawn from his war experiences because he was in the Spanish civil war and wanted to serve in world war two, but was passed up because of his injuries and because of his tuberculosis. And I don't know. It just, it seems really prescient like so I, I don't know if he had actual knowledge of that i mean i don't think he was he was never tortured as far as i know but it's really uncannily accurate and isn't when you think of like solitary confinement in prison that's my understanding of kind of what it is that it's yeah. not this black hole it's that you're in a room with a light on and you just never know how much time has passed and ugh, yeah it's i mean it strips you of everything yeah, and it makes you face it because if it was dark, at least you can, you know, maybe sleep, maybe, you know, close your eyes or imagine, you know, what's around you. But when it's completely bright, you know, no, you see everything and there's nothing to see, but that's just there forever as far as you know. And when they even have the telescreen, when he's not even in like his final destination for this, when he's in the room. In, in the book, there's a whole series of prisoners that pass in and out of here. But in the movie, I think it's just Parsons that, that comes in. Parsons? Am I saying that right? Yeah, Parsons that comes in. And when he closes his eyes at one moment, the telescreen's right on him. Winston, open up your eyes. You know, Smith can't put his hands in his pockets. He can't do anything. He has to sit there and be a good boy. Otherwise, the telescreen's just going to yell at him. And if he doesn't <laughs> fly right, then the guards are going to come in with the truncheons and beat him. The the other thing that really comes out of um you know if we were to uh to 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 do some meta tagging of this episode one of those things would be room one hundred one that's one of those things that always comes up when we talk about this when they were talking about room one hundred one and what's in room one hundred one is your your deepest fears your your the thing that is going to finally break you if you haven't been broken before and when they're talking about what could be in there and he says you know you could be buried alive it could be fire impalement. it drowning. could be this stuff right when he talks about drowning i'm just like wow okay so kind of like waterboarding then yeah. yes that's it's like waterboarding with rats I know over 200 ways to kill a man. You could glue an open jar of rats to his face, then blowtorch the other side of the jar so the rats have to eat their way out through his face. 201. At one point, I thought that I had read or heard that Winston's sister was eaten by rats. I don't know where that well, idea came from. One of the film versions, she was. I might have been... Yeah. I think it might have been the um, TV the adaptation, not the... Uh, Cushing one? I, yeah, I think it was it's the, the 1956 one. one. Okay, yeah, and one of them it is that he when he ran out with the chocolate bar and he came back and his little sister had been eaten. Or he, he walked in and his, there's just rats covering the baby carriage. 
I can't remember in the book which it is, if it's that they're just everywhere or that they actually eat his baby sister. I don't remember. I mean, it's more powerful, obviously, if they actually ate. And that's why I was surprised with the Radford film, which really doesn't hold back that that they don't say that happened because it just seemed like they're going so brutal that, yeah, that would have been the case from his history. But they lay off of it. And I, I don't know, maybe it wasn't directly that way in the book. I don't recall. Yeah, I think it's that in the 56 version, you get that sort of foreshadowing when they're they're alone together. In, that, that's, that's the worst possible thing in the world to me. Yes. Right? Yeah. And this rat comes out of nowhere. And it's just, I don't want to say it's cheesy because that's not, it's not quite that extreme. It's, but I found it forced. Yeah, it's, it's unexpected because he's this enormous guy and kind of throws a hissy fit over one single rat. Yes. Agree. <laughs> so I was glad that was not in the Radford version. And like teeny tiny Julia's like, okay, I'll kill it. A rat. A rat. It's gone now. I've seen you like the one thing I really hate. The one thing I'm really afraid of. Why? When I was a child, where I lived, there were swarms of them. One day, my my sister. Forgive me. I, I didn't mean to upset you. Yeah, she's like, no big deal, rat. I got yeah. this. Get a big paper <laughs> towel. It's, it's all good. <laughs> Well, one smart thing that Radford does is when he takes us into the, the his memories, into Winston's memories, and he kind of is mixing the memories with that golden place. At one point, he has his mother lying there in the in the tall grass, yeah. and there's a cut back to her, and she has rats all over her. Not as extreme as his sister being eaten <laughs> by rats, but no. definitely is uh, not a pleasant image. It's something that's going to come back to us when we have the rat and the, the whole thing. And, and what's amazing to me, though, is that Winston is basically broken by that point. He has just one tiny little glimmer. And just th there's one moment where he's just like, I could run out of here and they could put a bullet in the back of my head but I would still die thinking that I'm right and the world is wrong. And they take that away by putting him in room one-on-one and by making him renounce Julia. And that, yeah, that's, you know, because I, I was, I was thinking that the rest of the torture was already so extreme. The whole two plus two equals five thing with O'Brien uh, holding up his fingers. Yeah. And the electroshock and the drugs and all of these things that they're doing. And he seems like he's becoming the good party member. He is, you know, and then when uh, they, they managed to take that last little bit away from him, they managed to finally burn out his last remainder of humanity. He so reminds me of McMurphy at the end of uh, 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 One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. You know, they, they might as well have lobotomized this guy because he is nothing. He is a shell after this. Which is horrifying. It's so much worse. I mean, I still remember the feeling of when I first read this thinking – oh my God, is he going to survive this book? And at the end, it's so much worse. You wish right. that he had been killed. 
I will say something the Radford film does with that last shot is it, oh, and maybe this is just me like putting a, a very um, uh, unwarranted happy twinge of hope when he says, I love you. He's not looking at Big Brother, right? He's looking and he's facing Big Brother and he turns around and that's when he says, I love you. And it almost leaves that hope of maybe he's saying it to Julia. Maybe he's saying it about Big Brother. Maybe he doesn't know who he's saying it about. Maybe there's something in there still. And anybody could argue me down and say, no, 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 it's Big Brother. Just you're you're trying to put something happy on there. But I think it is an interesting choice that he is looking at us when he says that and not at the picture of Big Brother. Oh, totally agreed. And I... So I guess my interpretation of it, some, so the earlier versions, it seems pretty clear that he's talking to Big Brother. Right. But in this one, I didn't necessarily think he was saying it to Julia, but it's it's like that impulse, that desire for yeah. affection and intimacy that isn't quite gone. And that it sort of made me feel like him still saying that kind of aimlessly, maybe that's why other people gravitate towards Big Brother because they feel that too and they don't know where to direct it. Right. So it's and directed here's the for them. telling you direct it here because this is the person that loves yes. you back. Well, to your earlier point as far as her note and maybe her not knowing how to phrase things and her saying, I love you to him. Yeah, it's interesting that he can still love, that that is an emotion that they have managed to leave inside of him, because you would think that there would be no love, that there would just be obedience. Right. Like in the earlier versions, which which is kind of why I think this is the superior one. Well, well for a lot of reasons, I think this is the superior one, but... The 1956 one, I almost thought that they kind of leave it in a place where Julia seems to still be aware of things at the very end in that very, it's, you know, it's the same scene in all of them to an extent where Julia and Winston meet up after being tortured. And in the 56 version, of course, like they both look fine because they weren't really putting too much in the visuals there, but when, (laughs) you know, they have that same kind of stilted conversation and there's something about the staging of it where he's all about, I love you, big brother. I love you. I love you. I love you. And she, I thought, kind of had a look where she never seems enthusiastic about that and kind of almost seems as if you could look at that and say, maybe they're trying to say that she still is aware of things or that, you know, she genuinely regrets what she did. And again, it could have just been an interpretation of, you know, how I thought I saw it, but it it did. And I don't know if I liked that by any means, if anything. And my problem with the 56 one is that I just really hated the casting of Winston because he just seemed like like a Bluto type sort of <laughs> the entire time that like she just seems much smarter than him, even at the very end. So that could have. Been- yeah, no, she seems. So that was why one of the I think that was the thing above all else that struck me about the 1956 version is. So it's basically shot during the economic miracle in the U.S. in the time of Leave It to Beaver, when <laughs> which which she sort of Jan Sterling's character sort of evokes when like she puts the dress on and they're playing house. But there's also this really weird sense that she's the one who initiates everything in a more 
aggressive way than the other versions. He's so clueless, as as you said, yeah. that it kind of makes sense that at the end he's, you know, just sort of reduced down to almost nothing. Right. Except for his love for, yeah, except for his love for big brother, but she's doesn't have the enthusiasm. Yeah. He's also American and everybody else is British in that version. Right. That doesn't do anything. So yeah, no. (laughs) So there were a couple, you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the things that, maybe kind of we feel are still relevant uh, as far as the story goes. One of the things, you know, we were just um, uh, a couple weeks ago, we did an episode on um, the grand illusion. And there was a moment where one of my co-hosts was saying, you know, you can't have intelligent conversations with certain people these days that it just, there, there isn't that ability to communicate because the, one it feels like we're living in two different worlds yes and the the passage that made me stop short when i was uh listening to uh the the book again listening to 1984 was the passage from uh goldstein's book where he's talking about crime stop and i just want to uh read this really quickly here Crime stop means the faculty of stopping short as though by instinct at the threshold of any dangerous thought It includes the power of not grasping analogies, of failing to perceive logical errors, of misunderstanding the simplest arguments if they are inimical to Ingsoc, and of being bored or repelled by any train of thought which is capable of leading in a heretical direction. Crime stop, in short, means protective stupidity. But stupidity is not enough. On the contrary, orthodoxy in the full sense demands a control over one's own mental processes as complete as that of a contortionist over his body. It's ultimately on the belief that Big Brother is omnipotent and that the party is infallible. But since in reality Big Brother is not omnipotent and the party is not infallible, there is a need for an unwearying moment-to-moment flexibility in the treatment of facts. That whole idea of protective stupidity not grasping analogies, not being able to follow logic. That just seems like the world that we live in right Basket now. Of I deplorables. Know that... <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's like trying to make a point about something and having someone completely out of left field, like arguing something completely different. It's like, I, I'm trying to remember even the discussion that I was having. Oh, I was talking about um, this whole ridiculous notion of paid protesters. You know, people were protesting over the weekend about Trump still not releasing his taxes. And he's there tweeting about, you know, oh, all these people are being paid. And it's just like, no, you have to realize that millions of people dislike you. Yeah. Yeah. Millions of people probably hate you. Millions of people are disappointed with you breaking your promises, not being an effective leader, all this kind of stuff. So they're taking one of their Saturdays to make a point about that. They're not doing it because they're getting a check. No. And where would this check, where would this mystery check come from? Like there's never any evidence is necessary. Well, and that's the scariest thing, I think, about where we are right now politically, is that the president of the United States is making huge, bold statements that he has no evidence to back up. On the Internet, no less. On Twitter. saying things that he maybe heard in passing on Fox News or maybe overheard somebody say. And I mean, it goes back to him saying, well, you know, Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States. Where's his birth certificate? You know, it was a joke eight years ago. And 
then you look back and realize, oh, my God, that was the day that he became a viable politician in the eyes of people because suddenly he was somebody who was talking in a way that people understood. He was a figure that people recognized. And suddenly a politician could be somebody that, you know, they somehow felt closer to a billionaire than they ever did um, John Kerry. And it's insane. But, you know, the world, the country, we all let it happen to a degree. And I think to me, that's the scariest part about where we are is the, as much as for so long, there was an, there was a problem with politicians not being in touch with, you know, the, the people that they're serving and, Politicians kind of get groomed to be senators and so on from, you know, these kind of American royal families. But, uh, you know, the way you change that is by electing a billionaire who can't read. It's it's a scary world. It's I, I think it's so horrifying. And there's part of me that feels like if we get all blown up by North Korea tomorrow, we will have earned it. The thing that got me, though, is as I'm talking about how ridiculous this whole idea of paid protesters is, is then out of left field, this guy starts tweeting at me and sending me all of these facts, quote unquote, about the DNC, the Democratic National Convention, paying people to disrupt uh, Bernie Sanders rallies. And I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to take the time to argue if that's true or not. But the thing is that this whole idea uh, that Orwell was talking about, you know, being bored or repelled by any train of thought, you know, kind of thing. It's like I wasn't talking about people who are paid protesters at a Bernie Sanders rally or who are being planted at a Bernie Sanders rally. I'm talking about the people who are lining the road to Mar-a-Lago with signs, you know, that are saying, release the tax information. It's like those people have nothing to do with Bernie Sanders. No. Why would those people, if they are paid by the DNC, why would the DNC pay people to stand on the side of the road to protest? It doesn't make any sense. So it's just like uh, this whole idea of not being able to grasp where these things are coming from or where they're going or how analogies work. And it's just like, you guys, you don't understand this stuff. And it's just... Oh, driving me crazy. And then the other thing that that really got me was just the the because um, Goldstein also has a chapter about uh, you know war. What is it? Um, war is peace, and that if you're always at war with somebody, you have that something to hate, and you can always focus in on that whole thing. And just uh, I was watching uh, Adam Curtis's uh, hypernormalization today, and as he's going through there and talking about all of these touch points as far as Muammar Gaddafi being portrayed as the great Satan during Reagan's administration, and it's just like, okay, yeah, the, how Saddam Hussein was portrayed as the great Satan during both Clinton and then eventually, uh, well, really it was more both of the Bush boys, their stuff, and this whole, like, you know, I mean, weapons of mass destruction is an Orwellian concept. Here we are rallying and fighting and crying and going crazy about these weapons of mass destruction that don't exist. That nobody's ever seen, that nobody can account for. But yeah, you put the threat of it in the, Amer- the American population or, or any nation. And, uh, you know, and I mean, we even, the, the closest we've come in the, you know, the last however many years to 
warfare on the U.S. turf, 9-11, we, I think we're all, we all remember it. And you remember that period after it when everybody was a patriot. And, you know, yes, it was scary. And you thought, you know, as much as I didn't vote for Bush, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, he, he's, you know, actually it seems as though maybe we need somebody to, to fight right now. And how easy it was when that happened to be so scared and to think, I don't know, I am scared of what other countries can do. So if we have to go to war, I don't, I don't think we should go to war, but I don't know. Maybe I don't know enough about it. And the the feelings it does put in you it is abs- yeah it, it is very frightening to realize how easy it is to use the threat of war to manipulate people because i think we all went through it in our lifetime at this point i would bomb the shit out of them to the extent that it happens in 1984 it's Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia level, where people are being told things to such an extreme that, and and certainly with something like Nazi Germany, it was feeding off of earlier disappointments from World War One, where people maybe didn't really understand the full situation and felt like they were being victimized. So you have somebody who comes along, fixes the economy, and says, okay, no, we're going to go back to our, our great former national identity, which is, again, the whole make America great again yeah. thing. It's yep. like almost literally the same slogan. And it sort of feeds on this understanding that people don't know what's going on. They don't bother learning contemporary history. They don't read the news. But there's also something sort of airplane-like about the whole situation when you consider that the person who's saying this not only is not delivering it in a professional or political way, they're delivering it on Twitter, and it's not information they got from these highly classified intelligence briefings. They got it from hearing it on Fox News. Or reading it on Breitbart.com. Or probably not reading yeah, it on Breitbart.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having, it, having it read to them. <laughs> We all know. While wearing a Make America Great Again hat, that was probably made in China. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of the 1984 version of 1984, Michael Radford, and we'll be back with that after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. 
It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hey, projection booth listeners. I'm Chris Stashew, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor. And we are the hosts of the Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old often sent around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. <laughs> Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshop.com slash culturecast. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast proudly resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? I read that you were born in India. When did you make the move back to England? Oh, um, before I was kind of conscious of it, really, uh, I, my family, my father's family were part of the, in, you know, the Indian Army, the Raj and all that kind of thing. And have been in India on and off for about 150 years. So my dad was born in Belgaum and my grandfather was born in Hyderabad and my grandmother was born in Rangoon and my sister was born in Ralpindi and I happened to be born in New Delhi. But a couple of years later, we moved and actually I grew up Really, wherever the British Empire happened to be crumbling at the time, we, we, we would go there and, you know, bits of Africa and, and uh, the Middle East and all that kind of stuff. It was a great life because, you know, in those days, nobody really traveled very much except, you know, the, ki- the kids of military personnel or diplomats, you know. So, you know, there were no kind of computer guys or, or, or um, web designers and things like that who fly around the globe now and install themselves in Africa and build up huge industries there. There's none of that. But it was it was kind of interesting having a childhood of people chucking rocks at us. <laughs> I never got to see any films. Never. We were for films were kind of forbidden when I was a when I was a, a kid at school in at boarding school. And then um 
out in the in in the in Libya and places like that, Egypt. There weren't really wasn't anything you could see. You never did. I didn't see a movie really till I was about sixteen. How does somebody who doesn't watch movies then get interested in and go to the uh, National Film and Television School? What happened to me was that I found myself at university. No, at school actually. It was at school. And in the, when we got to the sixth form, which I guess is, I don't know, what's the penultimate grade that you can get to in, in American high schools? I can never remember. Is it 11th grade or 12th grade or something like that? You were allowed to go to, to the Cinematographical Society in the local town, which happened to be a town called Bedford. And they were a load of, you know, film maniacs. You know, they, they just would see anything with a – they showed what was known – uh, generally as French movies, which meant anything that had subtitles on it. And I had this education before I ever saw a film by John Ford or, or anybody else, for that matter, from, from Hollywood or from England. I saw Shoot the Pianist. Actually, it was the first film I saw, Francois Truffaut. And then I saw Eisenstein, Antonioni, and, and just you name it, I saw it. I actually only ever went to the Cinematographical Society because... I was told that you could smoke in, in the back row of the cinema and nobody would notice. So I thought, oh, that'd, that'd be great. So we all tucked it in with our illicit packet of cigarettes. And actually what happened was I was completely and totally knocked out by these movies. Absolutely knocked out. I had, it was a world I didn't know exist, you know, Bergman, Tarkovsky, you know, every, everything, Eisenstein. And, and I just, you know, swallowed it down. I mean, I just couldn't stop. And for a long time, I, my, my ambi- I didn't have any ambition, ambition to, to make films. I, I didn't know you could. You know, I didn't know that anybody could. I, think you, I didn't know how filmmakers, film directors came about, but I knew I wasn't one. You know, and I, and uh, it was only years later when I'd left university, I'd left Oxford having studied politics, philosophy, and economics and didn't know what I was going to do. And I started teaching in some a kind of a tough school in Edinburgh, and I found a 16-millimeter Bolex in the school that somebody had bought. It was actually a, you know, a, a school for kids who were going to be apprentices. So they were like, they were like kind of rough guys, the same age as me, pretty much. And my my job was really to try and teach them that everything they read in the newspaper was not necessarily true. And amongst all that, I decided that with this camera that I found and some footage, footage, some film stock, reversal film stock that I got from the local chemist, that I would shoot a little film. And I did. And the moment I put my hand on that Bolex 16mm camera and started shooting, I knew I could do this. You know, it, was, it was such an odd feeling because I didn't know why I could do it. I had no idea that nobody else could do it. I just knew I could do it. I didn't have any. It, didn't, it just felt so natural to me to to express myself in this way that I immediately applied to every single film school in the world, and uh, so it happened the National Film School was opening at that time, and and I became one of their first twenty five students, uh, and then I just kind of made a career, I guess, <laughs> along with um, my compatriot Roger Deakins, who's now become, you know, the most nominated uh, cameraman in history. <laughs> it's the most nominated. DP in the history of Hollywood, nominated fourteen times, and never won a never won an award, but he should have done many times. And he shot my first three movies, and 
and just so happened. I mean, I shot this one film uh, called Another Time, Another Place, which is a very, which is a, a big cult film in Europe, actually, really is. I mean, it's amazing how many people have, have come to me and said, you know, how much they like, particularly in France and in Italy, and Spain and Germany and places like that. I made this little film, but it was, it just went down very well. Not in America, by the way, uh, in, I got my first really bad review, which was horrendous. Um, it was in a New York newspaper. I can't remember what it, which one it was. It wasn't one of the big ones, but it nevertheless hit me like a hammer. Um, it went, it, the, it was captioned another time, another place, go see another film. <laughs> you know, for your first reviews, kind of heavy. You know, it's kind of tough. Uh, but, but actually, I got a standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival. I got a letter from Jean-Luc Godard saying that he was going to give up his latest documentary, which was about how the British couldn't make movies. And I got a, a letter from uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, who said to me I was the only guy who understood Italy really from anywhere else besides Italy. And my career took off and then I made, and then I made 1984. I made 1984 because nobody else was making it and it was 1984 was coming up. So uh, Simon Perry and I, um, the, my producer of, the, of, of Another Time, Another Place, decided that we'd fig- try and figure out who had the rights and we found them with this lawyer in Chicago called Marvin Rosenblum and he couldn't get anybody else interested so we all went in together and I, um, Simon went to Richard Branson to get the money and and um what's his name uh, marvin threw in the rights to the book and i wrote a script i promised to write a script in three weeks which i did and we set off on the first day of 1984 and i was just actually looking at a little piece on the internet which i found a little kind of broadcast by the bbc which is because of john hurt's death you know they were sort of delving into that kind of thing I mean, I can't believe it. Now, apparently we shot for 16 weeks. This is my second film. We shot for 16 weeks. Can you imagine? Can't do that now um, unless, you're, unless you're, you've got $300 million in your pocket. But, but um, it, was, um, and it, was, it was amazing. I mean, it was, you know, it's sort of, even though it was heavily criticized by a lot of critics at the time, it, 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 it had a huge impact um, quite strangely on... on um, on youth, because every, we were kind of expecting an audience of about thirty-five, you know, about thirty-five years old who remembered the book and all the rest of it. But no, not at all. And and you know, the the MGM were very um, depressed that I wouldn't change the ending of the story. And I said, you can't do that. You know, it's, it's a classic book. You just can't. And we ended up with this thing that was um, appealed somehow to the nihilism that you feel when you're about 17 or 18, you know, the feel there's no, you know, that kind of indul- slightly indulgent way. My, my sons went through it, you know, with a lot of Sean Penn movies and stuff like that. And I, and I, I happened to make one of these movies and it did huge business. And then I, you know, I became kind of famous all, all of a sudden, even though I'm not sure it made any money really, but, but uh, I complained bitterly about the music. I remember about that and had a great row with Richard Branson and the Eurythmics. But that only kind of made my kudos in the, in the eyes of the public even greater. And suddenly I was being offered absolutely everything in Hollywood, which kind of it all went too fast for me. Actually, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't take it. I had to come back and just um, settle myself because, you know, I'd rather seen myself as Fellini rather than I mean, they offered me Robocop, basically. <laughs> but, and I thought it was all very, you know, kind of. Um, you know, I just took it by by in in my stride. I, I just sort of thought that's what they did. You know, they flew out to Hollywood and said, 
the, the immortal lines that Mike Medavoy of Orion Pictures said to me. He said, um, if you like it, you start on Monday. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, do I really like it? You know, and I actually sat thinking, I don't know if this is right. You know, am I really the go-to guy for science fiction movies now? Is this really me? So I, I came back home. Unfortunately, actually, I wish I hadn't, no. It must have been rather daunting to adapt 1984 for the big screen. Yes, it was. I mean, a lot of people have said it's too literal and faithful, but I think that it's not really, actually. I I made a lot of changes uh, in the book. The thing that I wanted to do was drive forward the visual imagery of this world um, and the first decision I made was that I was going to do it as the, uh, in a future imagined in 1948, which is when he wrote the book. So it's a kind of a parallel universe. And um, that was my key. And then daunting. No, I never find it daunting because the book is the book and the film is the film. But I, I did want it to be, you know, I wanted people to say, oh, my God, you know, John Hurt is exactly as I imagined Winston Smith to be. And. Richard Burton, you know, my God, he reminds me, he's exactly the person. I, and actually, I wanted people to say, that image of Big Brother is, wow, that's really that's really exactly how I've always imagined him. So uh, I, I was trying to do that. It's a different kind of thing from, you know, making, in, in a way, I was trying to make my own movie. And in a way, that's what you do, you know, con- you know continue, con- at the same time as me. Um, Terry Gilliam, in fact, on the same locations, was buzzing around making making um, Brazil. Yeah, but that that in a way was was his sort of. It wasn't really his take on 1984. It was his take on on this kind of utopias, dystopias, and all the rest of it, and terrific. But but I was trying to do something else. I was trying to make a classic book, and it's a different game. It's a different genre, and I of course was accused of all sorts of things, but actually. None of them are true. None of them are true. I was pretty faithful. I just wanted to find ways in which I could make that world a concrete place, you know, make it a, make it a place that you could really believe in. And so that was that was um, technically quite difficult because the idea is really that all the all the mechanics of what they did, all the things that they invented, the new things that they invented, like like you know, um, you know, the things that destroyed. Um, any evidence of anything or or, or the, whatever they did or the ways in which they communicated with each other was um, always the, 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 what was in their heads was they were going to make his life as difficult as possible. So machines are not invented to make life easier. They're invented to make life more difficult um, because it occupies your time and keeps you bent over them and, and you, you know, and you don't really think about yourself or where you are or anything else like that. And that's how I looked at it. And actually, it worked because I, I, I still look at the movie and I think, OK, you did OK, mate. That was your second movie. You did OK. <laughs> it's got such a wonderful look to it. And I know that comes partially from Roger Deakins, but it also comes from a lot of the sets and just where you set this world. It just the look to this and just how desolate everything looks and how gray and just, it looks like it's overcast all of the time. Probably was actually. Um, <laughs> no, actually it's, it's um, interestingly enough. We, first of all, uh, we had to find a proper location. I, and I've, we found this location, which was called, called Beckton Gasworks. 
actually Stanley Kubrick saw it, saw 1984, and and went back there and shot um, um, his his Vietnam War film there, um, Full Metal, Full Metal, just almost immediately after my film had been released. What I loved about Vector and Gasworks was it was a place that had the had all the it was being it was being destroyed. It was being knocked down because it was no longer useful to anybody. But what they'd done is they'd come in first and stripped all of the metal rods out of the reinforced concrete. So, but left the building standing. So they were kind of teetering on edge, as though a nuclear war had just happened. I mean, it, the place looked like a nuclear war had happened. So I, I shot everything there. It was a pretty pretty horrendous place to be in. You know, it had all these fantastic things. And and the other thing was that, you know, special effects were not really in vogue, although I, I, I won many prizes for special, for, for special effects in the movie. Uh, there weren't any. The, it was Everything was done for real. So we had these huge telescreens, um, which were back projection or front projection. And we had to, and I filmed all the stuff footage before I started the main film and put it on the screens. And then you had to be very careful because you couldn't just, you know, you had to be really good about continuity and stuff like that and how you're going to shoot stuff. It was, uh, but the look of it was really then, I'd made a small film when I was at film school, which in which I desaturated the color using what they called a triple bypass system, a, a triple pack system where I pack black and white film, a black and white copy of the film with the color negative. And it desaturated all the color. And I really liked the feel, the feel of that the kind of, the kind of and, and that's what we did with this, which uh, was called the bleach bypass system. Basically, we just missed out one of the systems in, 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 color printing which was to you put bleach in to take out the silver nitrate from the film and if you don't do that which is what we didn't do the color never fully fully uh, flowers and uh, so that's what happened we we shot it, it, it the great thing was it was a printing process it wasn't a shooting process except that we had to paint everybody's faces green and um <laughs> which accounts for some of the bleakness but yeah i mean a lot of people in boiler suits and and also the, the the rubble of this place, plus the bleach bypass system. You know, I think it was bleak enough, like 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 that. Yeah, that was how it worked. Well, and it's such a beautiful contrast too with those moments of Winston going to his his safe place, his happy place. Mm. Where was that shot at, and how was that done? That was shot in in Wiltshire. One of the reasons was because we shot the two minutes hate in a in a, in a large bunker in which. They built something which is very famous in British history. You may not know it, but there was a thing called the Bouncing Bomb, which was a, used to – there was a film made about them actually called The Dam Busters. And um, it was a kind of jingoistic British film about how these, this group of pilots went in with this, bar, with this bomb that had been designed. And uh, it bounced along the water instead of, instead of being dropped on the dam, which wouldn't have destroyed it. And so these, they were known as the bouncing bombs. They bounced along the surface of the water and hit the dam at a, at, a, at a right angle and blew it to bits. And the whole of the Ruhr Valley was flooded and the, the whole German military machine fell apart at that moment. Anyway, there was a big bunker there which was, had, um, could house 2,000 people. So uh, that's where we shot the two minutes hate. But because of that, um, I was looking around there and I found this view on the Wiltshire Hills, which was absolutely extraordinary. And I, and I, I thought, how am I going to do this? 
Um, and it's almost unbelievable what we did because instead of, you know, trying to create a visual effect or, a, or a, you know, putting a back projection or front projection so that when they walk down the corridor to room 101, they open the, the door and there is this stuff. Well, what we did was we built a 60-foot corridor. You could see it from about 200 miles away. It was so huge on the hillside. And, that, and then they just climbed into this corridor and they walked towards it and the door swung open. And there you were actually in the countryside. Um, and that's, um, that's how we did that, you know, the, the, the golden country, if you like. It, it's a beautiful place. It's beautiful. It's really, really well, well, it is absolutely the perfect bucolic idyll that's in Winston's mind. For many long weeks after we'd stopped filming, you could drive down the, 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 the motorway towards the west towards and see this huge <laughs> corridor it looked like a great huge articulated truck uh, on the hillside but it wasn't it was just a corridor it was amazing the production design of the film is wonderful i mean the the logos the ink sock um v and everything just it, it looks wonderful and especially the way that you use the the big faces the big face of big brother the big face of the con- confessionals all of that is just wonderful to look at yeah well uh, thank you for that but 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 uh, it was a kind of kind of a collaboration i had a great um production designer who who ended up actually spielberg signed him up to make um, that film in, that he shot in, uh, about the war in, in, um, in China, Empire of the Sun. To a certain extent, it was the production design, with a lot of which, you know, we spent, but uh, a lot of which was done by, by, by the production designer. But also, it was a lot to do with the location hunting, because we shot in a lot of real locations. For instance, Victory Square was the... Um, was the old Alexandra Palace, which was the old home of the BBC that had a fire. So the whole interior of the building, which was this huge building, which contained all the entire BBC, had been burnt open, the roof blown off. And it just looked the perfect place to shoot the Victory Squares. You know, we, we, we had, I don't know how many, we had 2,000 extras, 25 cameras and all the rest, they all fitted in there. So, so that kind of capacity to do that, we carefully thought about the design of all the the posters and the the, the things. It, it, it was it was so interesting. The curious thing about it all was that all we what I realised as I was going through it all was that um, Orwell himself hadn't really realised the power of television. He'd invented the idea of it, but he hadn't. Invented the idea of the power of television, but he didn't really realize it. He he was he came from a world when posters and um, and radio uh, were the were the the big you know things of um, of propaganda, um, the big instruments of propaganda. And film came in film film propaganda films, but certainly not television propaganda films. I based. I made the propaganda films and then based them on uh, the kind of work, uh, you know, Dylan Thomas, the poet was, you know, used to write propaganda films for the ministry of information. (laughs) And I I watched them all and realized they all fell into a particular kind of way. You know, Um, there's a structure to political films, which I won't go into now, but, but uh, anyway, all that look of the film was, was carefully, I mean, what it was a real collaboration. I mean, I felt, you know, I, 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 I don't, I guess I, I, 
I felt in that film that I'd been part of it. Not, I'm not trying to claim the credit or anything like that. I just, it was, you know, I was able to collaborate with everybody as we were making the film, which was fantastic, absolutely fantastic to be able to do it. Um, you know, the shape of the telescreens, the, 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 the images of Big Brother, the images of the executions, all that kind of stuff. So that was that was very much, and the posters I still have. Um, I think the last four of them they were really cheap posters. You know, they were done on cheap materials and everything. I think they the the last one was sold for charity for about I don't know for about twenty thousand dollars <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I, I love the look of the film. I do actually. I I, I love it. The, oh, the other thing I can tell you what else happened: haircuts. This is this is the most extraordinary thing about it all because, as I said, the film went to the audience. They were they're he- heading for an audience of thirty five. They ended up with an audience who were around about eighteen, nineteen, and I at that time it was it was the 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 period everybody had long hair. So when, when you had a an uh, an extra in the movie who had long hair, you had to pay them to cut their hair as well. So it doubled the pro- the wages of the extras. Um, but we did it. We did it with 2,000 people. We gave them short back and sides, you know, really kind of haircuts. And within a week of the film coming out, I was walking down Oxford Street and I suddenly saw a group of people with the 1984 haircut. And I realized that I just killed off long hair. <laughs> it was a cultural, my great contribution to British or world culture. So I killed off long hair. <laughs> it's gone back again, but, you know. How did you decide on the look of Big Brother? I mean, that was was it Bob Flagg playing yes. Big Brother? It was. He was um, he was a, a kind of a an itinerant comedian. He went and used to go and entertain the troops, and you know, who were in the Falkland Islands and things like that. And we ran a competition in the Guardian newspaper for the person to for people to put themselves forward who looked like Big Brother. I said, I guess it's impossible, really, to put that image in. But I, I was, uh, I was kind of pleased because he he, he put he, he put his photo in along with fifteen thousand other people, more probably more. And immediately I saw it. I thought, this is the guy. And it was so interesting to to realize that he was a comedian. But he had, but he had this, uh, he had this. I don't know what he had. He had some quality about him, which which for me was was absolutely, you know, because. I think the last version of 1984 before this film, you know, they used a picture of somebody who more or less resembled Stalin. And I wasn't, I didn't want to go that way. I I, I wanted this not to be just about left-wing totalitarianism, but totalitarianism in general. I just, uh, we ran this competition and he won. (laughs) It was a whole big thing. And I I chose him because I just thought, this is the guy. I couldn't look at anybody else after that. I don't know whether I was right or wrong. This to this day, I don't know. But he he's there, and he is that he is that figure. When did John Hurt enter the picture? Right at the beginning, and this is a true story. I mean, it's the kind of story that actors tell each other, but in fact, it's true. Um, I was a, a brash a brash young man at that time, um, with no fear about anything. You know, thinking that I could think that the world was mine. So I walked up to him at a at I think it was at the BAFTA prize givings that year. And I just walked up to him and I said, you don't know me, but I'm going to make a film in 1984. And if you don't play Winston Smith, I'm going to give up this project. And I really meant it. I really, really meant it. I, did, I couldn't see myself making the film without him. He just said, are you serious? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, so am I. I'm going to do it. And that was that. 
and he was the first person and that made me feel that something big had happened you know i'd got my actor i'd got my i got the guy who just was winston smith and i don't i don't regret it to this day i think he was he's just a fabulous guy he was just a fabulous guy he's had he had a tendency to beside the actorish at times and i and i he claims that i said to him and i'm not sure if it's true but he claimed that i said it to him he said um you once said to me michael at the beginning of this film john you're a really 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 talented actor I, just for this film, I only want about 10% of that talent. <laughs> if I didn't say it, I wish I had. <laughs> yeah, but, I, but maybe I did. I've heard different stories about uh, Richard Burton on the film. Can you tell me what was it like working with him? He was like no other actor I have ever worked with because he didn't really enter into the psychological, you know, into the psychology of the character. I mean, I, not overtly anyway. Never, We never really talked about it or if he did you know if he did talk about it you know it was so way off the mark I sort of hurried to change the subject he had this voice he he didn't do anything particular with his body either he but he had this voice he could read a telephone book and make it sound like the bible he could do anything and make it completely remodulate the entire in the entire speech so I, I I got to the point where I, I would just say a little bit more charming, Richard, or a little harder or a little softer. I mean, simple, simple. It really taught me how to direct. Very, very simple statements like that. And then he would come back. Physically hadn't changed. Physically did nothing different. But his voice would be completely remodulated right from beginning to end. And he had these huge, long speeches to do. And he was he was thrilled to bits to be, because he, he wasn't my first choice, actually. He was, he was, you know, I'd been through a few others, and all for one reason or another, they couldn't, they couldn't do it. And mainly, not because I didn't think he was a great actor, but because he had a reputation for being a, <laughs> an alcoholic. So I wasn't sure that, you know, I was going to be able to handle it. But eventually, he was the only guy who became obvious. And by the way, we only cast him six six weeks into shooting the movie. I, I mean, could you ever imagine that? To this in this day and age, it, it was amazing. People kept falling out. You know, Paul Schofield broke his leg, and Sean Connery, you know, was going to do another. Suddenly, was going to do another Bond film, and and all sorts of things happened. And, and Rod Steiger had, had a facelift which had fallen. <laughs> you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, and all the main candidates, you know, had dropped out one after another. And Richard was living in Haiti at the time. So he said it was the only place where people didn't recognize him. But I, I've no, I don't believe that for a second. Uh, I, just, I just, I don't know why he was living in Haiti. Anyway, it was. And he, and he, and he got, got on a plane, which was a difficult thing to do in 1984, to get from Haiti to London and came. And that was it. He, he came in and, and, and did the movie. And, it, and I, I couldn't have been happier. The other thing is he was a real movie star in the sense that a lot of movie stars, when you meet them in the flesh, they don't have that charisma that they have on the screen. He had this phenomenal charisma. In fact, it would, it would overpower the camera. I'd have to keep trying to get him to, to take down your charisma. You know, don't be so charismatic. It's kind of funny. It was, I was like a kid with a great big toy. You know, he was, he was marvelous. He was absolutely marvelous to work with. He really was. Um, and I enjoyed it. Susanna Hamilton gives one of the most fearless performances to me. What what was she like to work with? Actually, I, I, I just saw this 
little documentary. I mean, it was a little. There wasn't a making of or anything like that, but it was just this uh, sort of um, update by the BBC on what was going on. She was in it, and I I suddenly realised how why I chosen her. I chose her because she was so fresh. She was so normal. Um, She just did things with a kind of wonderful enthusiasm. And um, I, I, for me, she was, she was just fabulous Um, and, 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 and fearless, actually fearless, Uh, fearless to take her clothes off, fearless to try whatever it took. Um, And, and, uh, and a wonderful actress. And and then she, she, um, I think she did Out of Africa next. And then I think she just stopped making movies. I think she just got fed up with the whole business and left. I don't know what's happened to her now. I'd love to know because I adored working with her. She had that English quality, but it was a sort of English fearlessness, not an American fearlessness. It was an English fearlessness. It was sort of rooted in some kind of, I don't know, I don't know quite. She was quite posh. She was clearly not from the working class. She she wasn't a roughhouse kind of a girl, and yet she was a rebel. And she was that, you know, she, she actually was that. I mean, not that I cast people because, they, because they, they are that in real life. It makes no difference at all. They're actors. But she just had that, that lovely, lovely, fresh quality about her that I, I was irresistible. She wasn't too beautiful. She wasn't too iconic. She was just lovely. I love that red sash that she wears. It just sets her apart from everyone else. <laughs> yeah, that was the... The sexual immunity sash. What was it called? The art sem. No, not the art sem. Yes, the art of artificial insemination sash that you wore when you decided that you were not going to uh, have sexual intercourse with anybody ever again, or, or ever for that matter. Clearly, she, she was she was not quite strict for those particular rules. Yeah. You talked about some of the rather unfair reviews for your first feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of feedback did you get from 1984? It was interesting because uh, the film, the French film critics, you know, whom I, you know, was in awe of, um, decided that they were going to take me down a peg. You know, having built me up with Another Time, Another Place, which was a small movie, they took me down. But the film was so big, and it was only my second movie. The business itself. Hollywood took it very seriously, even though it hadn't, um, it didn't, I don't know if it did, but it did decent box office, but it didn't, I mean, actually it did, it broke all the records in the West End of London, but I think it, 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 it was too dark for, for Hollywood to, to really get behind it. In fact, they tried to maybe change the ending at one point. I said, you can't do that. You know, any other, you know, it's like changing the ending to the Bible. You know, what could you, you can't do it. You know, you, you know, you can't say, well, you know, it didn't happen. Behind, behind that, behind the commercial aspects of it, and it, and it, and it, was, a, it was a success. It beat all the records, records in the West End in London, and, and, it, and a, a huge numbers of people saw it. But I think that that um, the thing that happened was that they th- I, I was just the good, the go-to guy um, for science fiction. I mean, that was it. And I could have had an entirely different career. I'm starting, I'm beginning to regret it now. You know, I'm still thinking <laughs> I made all those decisions not to to not to go to go and do another science fiction movie. And in fact, maybe I should have done. 
Well, I personally loved White Mischief and El Postino. I mean, you've done so many great films since then. I, I really wouldn't regret it if I were you. <laughs> no, 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 I don't regret it. In fact, I mean, I, I, I no, no, of course I don't regret it. I'd probably be richer, but I, but uh, that doesn't that doesn't actually bother me that much. No, I, the person I went to see was my was my. I went I went to ask. I had a kind of a mentor who was the great Hollywood director called Fred Zinnerman, who used to live live in in the. Um, in the in the winters or in the summers, I can't remember. And he spent half the year in London, and he took a shine to me after my first movie, and um, and he opted to give me some advice. I went to ask him. I said, "Look, you know, what do I do about all these offers of huge science fiction movies? What do I do?" And he said, "Michael, you at the crossroads." And I said, "Yeah." He said, uh, "He said, yeah. Either you want the mink coats and the Cadillacs, or you don't want the mink coats and the Cadillacs. It's up to you." And I thought, hell, I don't want mink coats and Cadillacs. You know, I'm having a good time. You know, I don't need all that. And so I, I turned them all down. And I went back and said, thanks, Fred, for the advice. It's just it was a matter of uh, a matter of information. You know, I'd like to find out. You must have been through this yourself. You must have been at the crossroads yourself one time. He said, oh yeah, I was at the crossroads. And I said, what did you do? He said, oh, I took the mink coats and the Cadillacs. I said, my wife had very expensive days. <laughs> Fred, what film are you talking about here? And he looked at me with this desperation in his face. And he said, in the bitterest voice, he said the following. He said, Oklahoma. <laughs> Apparently, he had the most miserable time of his entire life on that picture. <laughs> But, you know, there it is. It's up there. It's, you know, it's a famous old musical. Um, I guess Rod Steiger wasn't that easy. I, don't, I think he had a reputation for not being, not being very easy. But um, I don't think that was it. I think he just, I think he thought he was doing himself a disservice by making the movie, which just shows you that you should never listen to your own voice in your head. You know, just get on and do it. Just get on and do the next picture and see what happens. You talked about how uh, Another Time, Another Place was uh, hailed by Bertolucci for understanding uh, Italy. And then mm-hmm. you've you've made a lot of other films, or at least a handful of other films, set in Italy and, and dealing with Italy. What is it about Italy? Did, was that one of the places that you went to when you were bouncing around from one place to another? Not at all. Not at all. It was a pure, pure accident. I, I found myself there for personal reasons. Uh, once I said a story which is too long to tell, but... Oh, I know. Well, I was I was making I mean, my very first job was to make some documentaries with arts documentaries, and I went round Italy. I told the BBC, the the, the, the British uh, television, that I'd I could speak fluent Italian. I couldn't speak a word, but I needed a job, and and they uh, they took me as their interpreter. That's <laughs> hilarious. And then they dumped me in Naples. Uh, but by that time, I I I'd, I'd learned quite a lot about. Italy and Italian culture and everything, and it was uh, it became a kind of a a strange fascination for me, but not really any more than being abroad. I'm a person who's most comfortable, you know, when I'm not in England. So it wasn't particularly me picking Italy, except years later I realised that when I first went to university, I'd gone into a pub with some mates, and I remember I'd forgotten it completely, and suddenly it came back to me. I walked in and we had a drink, and there was a gypsy in there. And she said, I'm going to read your hand. So I gave her some money and she read my palm. This was when I was 17. And she said to me, all of your future will be in Italy. And I had completely forgotten it. And then, you know, I made my first documentaries in Italy for the BBC. I 
Um, my son was, I got married. My son was born there. Um, I, I made my biggest successes there. I've, I've become part of the fabric of Italy. You know, I'm the go-to man from, I'm actually a bankable director here in Italy, which is, which is, you know, a curse and a, and a, and a blessing at the same time. I mean, it's not a place that you'd want to choose to make pictures. It's really hard to make pictures here. Um, I'd much rather be in Hollywood with all the, the stuff around me, you know, and all the means to make films because it's hard work here. Um, and it's not the Italian cinema of old, but they were my favorite movies. You know, Antonioni, I loved his pictures. I loved, I loved all of them, those 20 or so Italian directors who, who all worked, were working at the same time, creating that great cinema. I fell in love with that. And, I, and I'm not sure that that's, I just, I'm quite good at languages. So I, I, I picked up the language pretty, pretty easily. And I, and I, and it just so happened. I made this film, which has become an icon of, of, of Italian cinema for the Italians anyway. Um, it, it absolutely is. And, and um, I think they slightly resent me for being British and <laughs> not being Italian, but, but, you know, um, and it came out of my friendship by chance with, Massimo Teresi. And the rest is history, really. It just, it just, it's kind of one of those things. It's great to have made one. I, I just wish sometimes that people didn't consider that it was the only film I'd ever made. <laughs> I guess you could be cursed with that. But, so I don't watch it much anymore, but, but, but certainly people around here, it's, it's, so it's, it's quite easy to come here and work because my name means something, um, linked with, you know, movie styles and stuff like that. Um, it means something here, which is which is very gratifying. I have to say, uh, in America, it's it's in in the U.S. It's still one of those movies that people bring up, although they tend to call it El Positano. Uh, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I don't mind. What are you working on these days? Are you working on? Uh, I've read your name attached to the music of silence. Yes, that's it. Um, I'm doing a film which which. I refused a lot of times, but then I thought, why not? You know, this is actually an interesting subject. And it's, it's about a blind guy who, you know, became a, an international star. And uh, it's about Andrea Bocelli. Although it, it, it's sort of taken from, from his autobiography, but it's not, I don't know if it's even an autobiography, actually, but it's not really. It, it's just, uh, it, it's a classic story of a, of a guy trying to make it against all the odds. Um, and what I've tried to do is to bring into it that the kind of picture that I have of Italy, which is, uh, I can't, you know, it's this mixture of comedy and humanity, comedy and suffering. And it's a very, very hard thing to put your finger on. But I, I spend a huge amount of time casting not the main character, but all the people that are around him, because I want them to, people never to forget them, because, because it, for me, that's the great skill, if you like, of, I, I see it in some of the great um, Hollywood movies as well. This, the, the, the skill is to not just direct the main actors. They do their work. The people invest in them and all the rest of it. But all those people that surround them, I think that's the great, for me, the great sign of a, good, of a great director. If they can make, make them live, make the guy who takes the ticket at the, at the Greyhound bus station live and not just be... A guy takes the ticket at the, and so I like to give I like to give real character to everybody, so that every single person is vivid in the in the uh, in the film, and I and I've had great fun doing that. I have to say, um, and it's something that I 
I guess I know Italy and the culture of Italy so well now that, that I mean, not, not as well as the Italians do, but I do know it and I have this eye on it, which, which I think allows me to express myself in a way that perhaps I wouldn't be able to in, in, in Britain or in, or, or in the Anglo-Saxon world. But it's not that I want to particularly stay in Italy making films. I still live in London and Los Angeles. So. Do you commute back and forth? I do. I did for a lot of time. Actually, I just sold my house in, in LA because because um, I wasn't there enough. Me and every time I wanted to be there, we'd rented it out to somebody, so we could we had to go and stay in a hotel. So, <laughs> so, um, so I I sold it last year, and I and um, but I um, um, so I live in I live in in London uh, with my wife and kids. Um, actually, these days it sort of doesn't really matter where you live anymore. It matters less and less. Except that I can't see them at the moment because I'm here in Rome and I have been for the last two or three months making this picture and will be for another month or so. It's been tough, actually, because there isn't a lot of money here to make films. And the kind of things that you take for granted when you're making a film in the, in the, uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world, if you like, uh, you, you can't really take for granted anymore here. It's, it's a great shame, but it is, a, it is an industry in, in real trouble. Um, I think the, the the big guys here, you know, the Sorrentinos and the Tornadores and so on, they make them, their films now with, I think, with international money. I don't, I don't think they get financed out of out of Italy or very, very much, very little. So it's hard work. It is hard work. But <laughs> I get to speak Italian <laughs> and uh, and eat, and eat and get. I get fat as soon as, soon as I arrive in Rome. You know, I'm, I'm like you know twelve pounds heavier than I was when I. <laughs> and I left. So 1984 was what 32 years ago? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's a confluence of events that have, have kind of brought me to you today. One being the passing of John Hurt recently, and then also kind of the uh, the term alternative facts that has now entered into our our language. What do you think that 1984 can tell us about today's world as well as it could in in 1984? Well, I think that, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful metaphor or a Greek myth even about the use and abuse of power. And um, not so much that, but the, the, I think his greatest, his greatest invention was his, the use of language, the use of language to, you know, double, double think. Um, and the, the use of language to say precisely the opposite of what you're saying, what you can say, uh, what, 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 what you're actually saying. Um, you say black is white. And to be able to hold two opposing ideas in your head at the same time and not feel any kind of contradiction, which I think is, is, is so close to it. I mean, it truly is exactly what happens. And, I mean, it happens to everybody. I saw the, the Duke of Edinburgh a few years ago going to Kenya um, and putting wreaths on the graves of the, of the heroic warriors from the Mau Mau. When I was growing up, the Mau Mau were killing us all, you know, and we were killing them, you know, and it was like that had never existed. That war had never existed. Alternative facts is a genius statement. I mean, just how anybody, how they came. I think, I mean, I'm going to be nice to her for a moment, not because I have any interest in Donald Trump, just to accept that I'm, you know, curious, really curious about him. Um, but uh, I, I think 
possibly what she was saying is there's an alternative way of looking at things. Uh, do you know what I mean? Or um, you may say that, but, you know, you're wrong. Uh, there was this. But the, the expression that she used betrayed all that. that. That's not what she was saying. <laughs> what she was saying is, if I say it's real, it is real. <laughs> and that's and that's it. <laughs> and it is the most brilliant statement. I mean, nobody could have shot themselves in the foot so eloquently as she did. And I don't know where it leaves us. I mean, I've been reading, I've been, you know, I'm an avid reader of The Guardian, which, you know, which you have basically the left-wing view, the left-wing view of things, or broadly speaking, the liberal view of things. And I've been thinking, as Trump has been going on, how actually I'm being dosed with my own, with things that make me feel good, you know, that, that, that actually The Guardian doesn't always uh, have an unbiased view about everything, although it, it perhaps purports to be, but it just doesn't always. I mean, I, I never stop reading it, but it, it um, just sometimes I feel that, that there's a reason why Trump is out there. There's a reason, and it's not necessarily the most – I read an article. They did, actually wrote an article today which, which was saying that, you know, that uh, with Obama, he was, so, he was such, such a kind of charismatic figure, but he promised a lot of things to people that never happened. And he never shut down Guantanamo. And I don't know how he was able to, rec- to re- reconciliate that with, uh, with all the other things that, that he believed in. So reconcile, sorry, the, the word is not reconciliate, but how you could reconcile that, that, that fact. And it always stuck in my throat. What's so odd about about politics and the, I mean I just look at a man who's a bounty billionaire and yet he's been he's been treated like one of the people one of us one of you know he's one of the guys who never paid his taxes and left you in misery um, and yet he's managed to pr- uh, propose himself as the guy who who speaks for the middle America which is collapsing and the heart of America which is collapsing. And I don't know how he's done it, perhaps by using alternative facts. I don't know. It, 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 is, it is just but gobsmacking that this man who has never paid a single penny of tax in his life, you know, is regarded as a hero. I, I, all I can say is that the, the bitter divide between capitalism and socialism is dead. It, it, it has to be. There's another, there's another discourse going on now. And I think that discourse is what is a nation? What is it? What are borders? What are lines that you draw? You know, I, I, I think that within probably 50 years, uh, New York, London, Paris, Milan, Berlin will be closer to each other than to any of the satellite cities that sit around them, that they'll be a country. They almost are now. We, we've for so long sort of split between liberal sensitivity and and uh, capitalist greed that that discourse seems to have been split split open. I'm sorry, I'm saying lots of different things at the same time, but that discourse seems not to be there anymore. Um, and I think that there's a much more sinister thing going on with, with, with people, people in a way feeling, as everybody does when they're sitting in a bar, in a sports bar somewhere, you know, they've got the answer to the universe. Um, and all those guys are suddenly standing up and saying, well, I know what's wrong with this country. Uh, I know what can settle us. And for a long, long, long time, I I remember somebody saying to me 
that um, if you held a referendum in Great Britain, one of the most passive passive countries in the world um, at the moment, and if you held a referendum on capital punishment, execution of, 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 of people in jail would be an absolute dead cert with 75% of the population. It would, it would win hands down. There's no doubt about it. So does that mean then that the government has, who's been elected actually should allow that to happen? And the answer to that is no. The answer to that is we elect, you know, that in fact referenda or sort of big, you know, populist elections are often, you know, ele- people are elected on issues which have nothing to do with the issue at hand. I mean, it's, it's, they just have to do with the fact that I don't like the face of the guy down the street. <laughs> and somehow or another, you, all the onus and the, and the pressure of living in modern society eats away at you to the point where you just want to explode. And um, Trump has just, you know, burrowed into that. I, I just hope it doesn't last very long. That's all I <laughs> How is it going with the whole uh, Brexit thing? I, I, you know, the, the, the sort of, it's all the little England. It's been a, it's been a very conservative view um, of, of, of England, you know, that they have this kind of mythic past in which everybody, you know, would England ran its own destiny and, you know, this, that and the other rubbish, you know, it never existed, that world of, you know, paternalistic England. It just never existed. And, and the, the Tories hanker on after it. And, and, and then, so they, they, they decide to have this referendum of all the, and then people voted, you know, in every way for uh, basically against immigration, but also against a whole load of things that were never part of the issue. And it, it's caused amongst the liberal fraternity here a, a tremendous sadness. I mean, I can't tell you how many people kind of wept because we thought we'd advanced. We thought we'd advanced. And honestly, here, I'm a good example of it. I'm a European. I don't consider the frontier to be Dover or Heathrow. I consider it to be as far as Europe extends. And Europe is, you know, is is not just a market. It's a whole cultural entity. And it's actually, I, I can't be done with nationalism except, you know, in a, a football match. You know, apart from that, I can't think of any other reason why I particularly want to want to support Britain. I, I, I think Britain is a much better place when it opens, its, opens itself out and realizes that we live in a group of, in, a, in the oldest and, and, and most complex um, society, and that's Europe. It, it, it really, I mean, okay, so it's not older than China, but it's the one that's most evolved at this particular moment in time. S- steadily being overtaken, don't let me get me wrong, but, but it just is a place. I think of myself as a European. That's why I make films here. That's why I make films in France. I don't consider them to be different places. I, did, I consider them to be places where you can have a, a great... Um, and and change of air and a fresher understanding of things. Uh, I mean, and if I'm not a citizen of Europe, I'm a citizen of the world. But what I'm not is somebody who says, uh, you know, I do not want people from the third world, or I do not want people from the from the community in in this on this piece of land. Why not? What what is so wonderful about being you know pink faced with red hair? You know what, what? What is what is so wonderful about it? It just doesn't make sense. What is there to survive? We had a history; it's great. Melded in with the rest of the history, 
You know, I, I, I remember once um, in Los Angeles, I walked into Virgin Records, Virgin Records School, and there was a, what I thought was an African-American girl sitting behind the, the counter, and she was talking, and, and I went over to her and I said, you know, could I get straight? And she talked, came back to me in a pure British accent. And I just went, oh, my God, you're English, you know, and I just jumped on her. And I thought, come on, let's go out for a drink. It never occurred to me that 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 she was black. It never even occurred to me. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm a saint or anything like that, but it just never occurred to me. Why should it? You know, why should it? And uh, I don't see, you know, we, we thrive on immigration. Our country is richer for it. What country's left? You know, I... Uh, and anyway, if all this happens, certainly what's going to happen is the Scots are going to leave. That's my big bet. The Scots are going to leave. <laughs> and that's going to cause huge havoc everywhere. And I hope they do, actually. I hope they do. Yeah, they almost passed that referendum. What was that? Two yeah, no, they're going to have another one now. And they have the muscle to do it now. So I think there's going to be a big shock coming, coming, uh, coming our way. It's ridiculous. It is completely ridiculous, Brexit. It's just... I don't know. It's it's a sort of link up with the, the the snobs in the Conservative Party with the 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 prejudiced of the working class. That's all I can say. Um, and and perhaps that's what's happening in in America at this moment. The same thing that it's not. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm. Yeah, you know, that's that's my understanding as well. And then even when I talk to my friends in Australia, it sounds like it's the same thing. It seems like it's kind of a wave that's going around it's it's as though as i say it's as though the divide between capitalism and and the working class is no longer the big divide it's about it's about um it's about prejudice it's about what prejudice can you find and who shares those prejudices and 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 the and the extreme right-wing capitalists share them those prejudices as uh, along with the with the with working class people who are desperate for their, you know, are desperate and want to blame somebody else for their desperation, but they're blaming the wrong people. They're blaming the wrong people. It's ridiculous. Um, and, and, uh, it's very, very curious. It's happening everywhere. Isn't it strange? It's kind of in, in the atmosphere. It's just happening everywhere. It's strange. Anyway, there you go. back and we were talking about 1984 and we touched on this well we touched on it quite a bit in our initial discussion but we should probably just uh recap this a little bit more we discussed how many versions there are of 1984 be it of official ones parodies all these kind of things i wish i could find 
the Goon Show uh, radio program where they did one called 1985, and um, you know it was more of a comedy thing, and that was done in the the mid 50s, I think. Unfortunately, I was unable to find that. I was able to find quite a few radio adaptations, and I mentioned how one of those first ones was done just a few months after the publication of Orwell's book. But yeah, within four years, there was a television version of this uh, from Studio One, uh, which and now this is this is the oddest casting to me, just because it's like when I finally saw. Double Indemnity, and here's Fred McMurray, who I only knew from uh, My Three Sons, and he's playing Walter Neff, and he's, you know, like, that's the surest ten dimes make a dollar, baby, and all this <laughs> kind of, like, smart patter that he's doing. I'm just like, what the hell is going on? My mind was blown because he was always, like, the nice dad on My Three Sons. So seeing uh, <laughs> Mr. Douglas from... Uh, <laughs> And I have seen Eddie Albert in a lot of things. I've seen him kill people on Columbo and stuff. But him as Winston Smith, I was just like, whoa, this is blowing my mind. And then the the other part was fucking Lauren Green as O'Brien. Just I was like, oh, what the hell's going on? My, my, I, I can't handle this. Uh, I was lucky that I didn't recognize anyone. This I think I watched second. My order was I watched the 56 film this one, the Peter Cushing version, and then the Radford version. So I think in part because I had so many problems with the 56 film, and this is the one that's only about an hour long, right? This is the shorter one. I kind of, for what it was, for it being a television play adaptation of 1984, I thought it was much better than it could have been in that they kept i think they weeded out a lot of what they didn't need and there was something about the the fact that they are almost doing it in a play set so there's not much of a set but so they're doing a lot with just walls or you know kind of dark spaces and even that the picture of big brother is this sort of expressionistic painting there were certain things about it that I think just because of the nature of the production kind of worked for me to give it this like slightly more creepy edge to it than at least the 56 film. I think I felt the opposite way, but I also made the mistake of watching this one last mm. and it just that. Yeah. I, I think if I had, if I had done it in chronological order and started with that one, it probably would have seemed a little bit more, maybe like you said, creepy and effective, but it just, you know, it's, it's hard to compete with John Hurt and sure. for, for me, hard to compete with Peter Cushing. So it was sort of like bottom of the totem pole kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you watched it after the, what was it? What, is it Edmund O'Brien in yes. the one? Which yeah. makes it this, so confusing that his name is Edmund O'Brien and you're trying to talk about O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you watch it after that version, I think. And that's what made this, you know, I'm like, oh, good. Winston is at least skinnier. <laughs> like that made a big difference for me. Eddie Albert always has this kind of like, like homegrown kind of. Uh, almost like a Midwestern type accent to his voice. And it's just like, he just always sounds like, I know he's not the Smuckers guy, but it always feels like he's going to start talking about like how good, you know, fiber one is for you or something, you know, like, Oh yeah, come on in have a cup of coffee. You know, yes. just like, 
And then, but I have to say Lauren Green as O'Brien, I mean, because Lauren Green, you know, having been uh, Pa on Bonanza for so long, he just, uh, he, to me, exudes trust. Yeah. And I could see him being that, you know, spider welcoming in um, uh, Winston uh, into his web. Um, what all of these versions, other than the Radford version, do is they eliminate Charrington being the, uh, a, uh, an agent, which I think kind of works because you don't really need Charrington to be an agent, though that tells you how insidious the whole party is, that the guy who ends up selling I mean, they set up Winston from the get-go. You know, he's the guy who sells Winston the diary that he eventually starts keeping an anti-Big Brother diary. He's, you know, gives him a a place to hide out with with Julia, you know, giving him this room. And, you know, obviously he's the one that puts the telescreen in the room. And then when he shows up, it is especially effective in the book, though I have to say it's very effective in the, in the Redford film as well, when he shows up and he is not that dotty old man that he was yeah. anymore. No, that's great. That is great. Now, yeah. here's a question. Are the antiques real? I think that they are because he picks up that piece of coral in the movie and looks at it like... How could these animals have broken this? Is at least that's in the Radford film, definitely. It does it totally feels like he may have been thought police, but he still has an appreciation for the world. But it's one of those things that I hadn't thought of until I watched what five versions of it to start to wonder. Like, wait a minute, what if even the what if even the diary is something they make in the Ministry of non-manufacturing the past where they're putting these things out there just to trap uh, subversives. The guy who adapted 1984 for the 1953 Studio One, uh, if there are similarities between that and the 56 version, it's because his name is on both of those. So if there are any I think failings is too strong of a word, but if there are any problems that we have with the 53 version, those will come back kind of in spades in the 56 version. And I think that's what helps set the 54 version apart from those, though that as well as using Peter Cushing as Winston Smith, which I think is probably the best thing that they possibly could have done. Yes. I've, I've already said like 10 times, I think so far I, he can do no wrong. Yeah, and he does no wrong in this. And and his transformation between the Winston Smith at the beginning and the Winston Smith at the end, like I had to look and be like, is that really the same guy? I was amazed to see that it could be the same person. I thought he did a great job with that. And then him and God, Donald Pleasance as yes. his second banana. Oh my God! Just seeing those two on screen at the same time, I was so happy. I I love Donald Pleasance, and when they're there, and and he's talking about Newspeak and how you know they're gonna by the eleventh edition of the the dictionary, how it's gonna be so great. I was like, this is wonderful. I was so happy. I love that Donald Pleasance apparently was the go-to guy for supporting characters in 1984 adaptations. <laughs> I was kind of bummed he didn't show up in the 82 villain film. I know. 84, yeah. The, just because, and he's, he, I mean, he's a similar character, but a different character in both. And it's actually kind of really neat when you think about it, because in the 56 film, he's Parsons. So he's the totally in love with Big Brother, father of the Nightmare Children. 
And in the 54 one, he is the smarter guy. And as much as I I was confused at first, because I'm like, wait, 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 is it Donald Pleasant again? But he's a completely different worker. Yeah, that he can flip between those two characters so easily was great. Like the definition of a character actor, I guess. Oh, yeah. But that's what makes him so, I mean, in everything I think he's in. It's. I was having a conversation with somebody recently about how he sort of moves back and forth between these kind of cult movie roles and and these bigger, more traditional roles. But he's just so perfect in everything. And I was so happy to see him appear twice. But I definitely, because the quality wasn't quite as sharp on the Peter Cushing version, I had to do a double take, but I recognized his voice. And for a second, I thought I was losing my mind. (laughs) Yeah, that's the only bad thing for me about that Cushing version is that it is obviously a telesync and is just, you know, so soft and you can see the the signal going in and out a little bit and I, I just felt bad about that but otherwise i was just i was really happy with that version and it's definitely and, of the 50s versions it's the most brutal too which i really appreciate and apparently it was quite controversial that networks were concerned but most people liked it that i think was it the queen also enjoyed it <laughs> there was some bit of trivia about that. I love that. But it is it, brutal. And I mean, Cushing doesn't, it, he's not put through the same, you know, physical deterioration that Hurt is. But for 54, and especially when you look at him next to the other two films, yeah, he he goes rough for it. They really do thin him out and make him, age him decades in those last scenes. It makes it easy to understand how he got cast in some of those physically grueling Hammer films later on. Like they must have like taken a look at this and thought, like, okay, this is our guy. We can we can <laughs> throw him off of things and have him be Baron Frankenstein and go three weeks without sleep. He just <laughs> he adapts to it so well. The fifty four version was. Um adapted by Nigel Neal and his adaptation was also used for a, I think it was a 65 version called the world of George Orwell, uh, 1984. And unfortunately that was one of those, as far as I know, it was one of the victims of the, uh, the whole purge at BBC. So like the originals were lost, but it's been since kind of recovered. And so, uh, I think in the library of Congress, they have it, but there's like a, uh, a section in the middle that is missing. And so, yeah, it's just like, so that was the one version that I was unable to find for us was that one. And then for a lot of years, the 56 version was also tough to find. That was one of those that just like thrived on the gray market. It was like, you know, one of those like, Oh yeah, go to shocking videos and pick up your 56, um, version of of 1984 and yeah that one i mean that is the most um well obviously it was a movie it was a movie movie it wasn't a television movie but it's the strangest one in that it's also the most futuristic even though it was 1956 it seems like it's more in the future than the 1984 version of of 84 does that make sense the um the little like mini vaporizer he has at his desk at work like that thing's really cool. Like I wanted one of those. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I would agree with that. It, I, and I think it might be back to that whole like 
they want to distance it from 1950s life. Yeah, I mean, the rest of it would have been anachronistic, I guess, had they made it, you know, 51 (laughs) or 49. (laughs) But, like, there's even a part where he's walking, you know, walking from one place to the other, and there's a map painting, and you can see, like, this futuristic-looking building, as opposed to the bombed-out buildings and stuff of, of the 1984 version. But I think we all have a problem. Well, we have two problems. One is that Edmund O'Brien's name is O'Brien, and that they had to then change the bad guy's name so that they didn't confuse people because of that. <laughs> they also had to change uh, Emmanuel Goldstein to what was like Sandra, right? Yeah, yeah. Which, which I don't understand. I mean, I I get it in theory, but I don't understand why they changed it. Yeah, that was weird. And then the other, the biggest thing, well, other than him being an American in a in a British, there's no explanation world, of it. <laughs> none. It's that he's beefy. He's so fucking beefy. I mean, I love Edmund O'Brien. I love him in his films noir. I love him in other things that he's done. But he was just totally the wrong person to play Winston Smith because it looks like he has not missed a meal in a long time. <laughs> he's never missed a meal, in fact. And, like, you could make an argument that, like, hey, like you know, well, hey, and everybody could be unhealthy. You, you could be starving and be overweight in this world because you're eating crap, right? Like, right. the whole, oh, people who are in food stamps, why are they overweight? Well, it's because the only thing they can afford are really processed foods and they're really bad for them. Except nobody else is like that in this world. So he just stands out in every scene because he's probably like six foot and looks like a linebacker and everybody else is tiny and Julia is tiny and it it makes him seem really dumb is the problem. Yeah, he's like Moose Malloy in a world <laughs> of <laughs> Philip Marlowe's, you know? He is. <laughs> It's just like, oh, God, I'll, I'll have to change that historical fact. I don't like that, brother. <sighs> it makes me sad because whenever I see Edmund O'Brien, I wish I was seeing Raymond Burr. <laughs> <laughs> and then to imagine him in this role, because he's so he's also giant, but is so sinister most of the time. It just was so off. I, I would think that O'Brien actually would have made a better O'Brien. Yeah. Than, you know. And Michael Redgrave, even though, like you were saying before, he telegraphs evil uh, so so Which well, I love. but he's at least is is a skinnier guy and seems like he could play that meek character a lot better. Edmund O'Brien is a lot of things, but he's not meek. It reminded me almost of the Psycho remake with Vince Vaughn. <laughs> like some people <laughs> thought that was a good idea. Gus Van Sant thought that was a good idea. Oh. And- you know, whoever made the 1956-1984, I apologize, I didn't look up the director, he thought that was a good idea. Well, I wouldn't be surprised, and I, I probably should have done a little bit more research on this, I wouldn't be surprised if this was one of those things like, we need to get this movie made, we want to get this movie made, Edmund O'Brien is a big star at the time, they hitch their wagons to Edmund O'Brien, and he's like, yeah, I'll play Winston Smith, or whatever, or like the the studio wouldn't back it unless he was the main character so that he could be on the screen, you know, on the poster and everything. But yeah, that was just a bad, bad idea. And this is, by the way, you were asking who directed this. This was Michael Anderson who directed this, who uh, I know him mostly from Logan's run. And he also did, um, I think millennium, which is uh, a 
pretty good film, the one with uh, Chris Christopherson, okay, if yeah. memory serves. And he had been around for forever. He and he had even done some of the uh, uh, the the films noir and everything. But yeah, um, so yeah, he should have known uh, better. Yeah, I mean, maybe he got. Maybe it was also they wanted an American for the American market. Who knows? It stuff happens, right? The wrong guy gets cast often and things like this. But yeah, it hurts it. It really does. I mean, it's not as bad as Kevin Costner's Robin Hood. No. It's also, okay, so it was apparently shown as a double feature with the Gamma people, which I really love. But if you compare it to that, that's just so over-the-top ridiculous. I mean, it has these Cold War themes, but it's this, like, really, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's this sort of really serious kind of stagey in a theatrical way like like 1984 is cold war horror movie with this like atomic terror theme where these british guys wind up in this soviet village and discover something they shouldn't but i can imagine this being a much different viewing experience watching it back to back with the gamma people versus watching it as i think all three of us did kind of in a block with the other 1984 adaptations right right it's a little unfair to it (laughs) it is kind of unfair yeah like had this been one of those movies that i saw like when i was you know because i've i've had this movie forever and i was just basically looking for an excuse to watch it because i did buy it probably from shocking videos or just for the hell of it or video search in miami forever ago and just it was one of those like weird curiosities and i bought it and put it on a shelf and kind of forgot about it and then yeah i watched it as part of this whole viewing cycle and had i seen it 20 years ago and when 1984 was the redford version wasn't fresh in my mind but yeah it it doesn't stand a chance against these other ones unfortunately no did you guys get a chance to see me and the big guy? I did. I'm glad I watched it because it was a nice like reprieve from the darkness of everything else. Yeah, it was a weird break. <laughs> I know Matt Nix from um, Bird Notice. And then I didn't realize that he was the guy who did uh, Memento, like a parody <laughs> of Memento, but with weed smoking. And then he did this one as well. I think he did this before Mem- Memento. And... Uh, yeah, this was that was great. It was really I was so fun. happy. Yeah, just the idea being like, what, like if you're lonely and you know Big Brother is watching you, and that's awesome because it means you have a friend. He's always there. <laughs> it was really charming. I turned to my friend five four seven six eight J. You know her, right? Sometimes I forget who I'm talking to. Of course, you know her. <laughs> So I turn to her and I say, I cannot wait to get home and tell the big guy. The big guy is gonna love this. Stop calling me the big guy. I feel like I was too 1984'd out to be charmed by it. I was just kind of (laughs) at my limit. The other thing that I found while we were uh, doing research on this, and I wish that this had uh, happened, was that at one point uh, during the 70s, David Bowie was going to make a version of 1984 with, of all people, William F. Spurrows. I wish it had happened. Me too. Can you imagine? Yes. <laughs> I don't think we're worthy of it. No, we're not. It's kind of, and people are going to hate, hate me for saying this, it's kind of interesting because there were other failed musicals that happened during this time. Oh, the, like, Metropolis the musical. That, and then 
the failed Peter Pan musical that Jim Stein, Steinman wrote and that ended up kind of becoming Bad Out of Hell, the <laughs> Beatles <right>. album. <laughs> <laughs> so David Bowie's uh, songs still kind of exist for this. There are th- at least three songs um, on the Diamond Dogs album that are uh, you know related to 1984. And so I'm sure that for some people who weren't familiar with the story of that, it was just like, why are these songs on this particular album? But that's why. If you've never known why there were these songs on there, it's because they were kind of from this rejected musical. What a shame. It is. Oh, yeah. I am just amazed at – so I don't want to call 1984 prescient. We had the, this discussion on uh, the They Live episode recently where you know we were using the word prescient to talk about They Live, and I was just like, no, it was actually very much a product of its time. And I know that 1984 was very much a product of its time. And I'm sure that people in 1949, when they read it, were talking about it. I'm sure that people five years later, I'm sure that when we read it, when we were in high school, we were thinking that this really is encapsulating the world that we're in today. So I don't want to say like, oh my God, this is so speaking to where we're at in 2017, but it is just so hard not to. It's impossible not to. Yeah. Especially when you fold in Animal Farm with it, and you see both, and every page you're drawing an, a current analogy. When Trump came out and said that President Obama had wiretapped <laughs> Trump Tower, I shouldn't be laughing, but oh my god. <laughs> I just had to dig up the quote about, you know, Snowball coming back to the farm and destroying stuff overnight, you know, that, I mean, this is, this is Napoleon's tactics to do this stuff. So in, in essence, it's Stalin tactics to do this to, to Trotsky, you know, to blame all this stuff on Trotsky. So we're going to blame all this stuff on President Obama, make all this shit up that, that never happened. And, and then just keep trying to sell the lie and just be like, oh, yeah, I've got such evidence. I've got the best evidence. I'm going to blow your mind with all this evidence. <laughs> this and evidence like, is great. Um, oh, my evidence yeah. is the best it's evidence. Like, <laughs> but catch up on my evidence. Is it is it actually that the evidence that that there was surveillance happening at because of the Russian gangsters who lived in Trump Tower? <laughs> yeah, I believe be that's how it kind of turned out. That no, it had nothing to do with Obama, but it did have to do with the fact that there were Russian ties in that building. <laughs> but it's just like how do you even how do you even have a news cycle that allows for Trump to say crazy shit? But then everyone to ignore the explanation in a way where if this happened under Obama's watch, he would never be able to forget it. It's so insane. They tried to impeach President Clinton because he got a fucking blowjob and lied about it. (sighs) And this guy can do this. He can have so many, quote unquote, unanswered questions. (laughs) And just all of these these tactics to try to dissuade us from looking at this stuff. I mean, you know, the 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 thing I keep seeing on Twitter now is please somebody start this investigation about the Russian stuff before he starts World War Three. Because every time we start to get that cycle going, he bombs another country, and then like, oh, we're distracted. Yeah, well, basically, he discovered now. that last week that oh, I can get a tiny bump if I bomb somewhere. 
And suddenly we are at war with East Asia. And we have always been at war with East Asia until we are suddenly at war with Eurasia. We've always been at war with Eurasia. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I never thought of myself as like a political alarmist in the least. But my God, how do you not see it right now? And how can you ignore i understand ignoring it in the sense that like well you know there's nothing i can do about it to not see it uh is is scary and if you don't see it i really think you need to read 1984 and make sure you see why that's a bad thing that you're not thinking like well no no, but the government's protecting the people no when china is the voice of reason after the last 30 years of our diplomatic history together when china's like okay everybody why don't you sit in your different corners and take a breath, maybe eat a snack, everyone calm <laughs> down. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that Trump can go, I mean, look at what he said about China two weeks ago to what he's saying about them now. It is a complete 180. And that's apparently okay. And what is going on when you can have somebody, because it's one thing for obviously stuff changes and relationships change and things change people change hairstyles change Larry, i want you to be with me interest rates fluctuate you know yes your allies become your enemies and vice versa not in a week <laughs> not in a week and not from somebody that you know doesn't go off of evidence and just stands there you know, screamed for a year about how China was the enemy and we were going to bring everything back to the U.S. And within a week says, no, I was totally wrong. They're fine. No, he was talking about China. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> That's why I'm thinking. You know, and now do we have to go back and revise all the history books? You know, just the, the, the amount of work that that's going to take. don't read anymore. Don't worry. For public high school, history books are generally already revised. Very true. Not that that's a positive thing. I'm not saying it's fine, but... but Well, and it's going to be so much easier when we don't have history books. When uh, we just or have, when we don't have high school. When we only have five words that encapsulate history and, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, Betsy DeVos will take care uh, of all high school. Uh, uh. Yeah. <sighs> well, and the, the thing, you know, you were saying, like, if if you don't see this, you need to go out and read uh, 1984. The thing is that people can read this and then turn it around to where they come from. You know, I'm sure that there are people listening to us. Well, if they've made it this far <laughs> in the podcast, I doubt it. But where they're just like, you guys are crazy. This is this is ju- this is about Obama. You know, this is about Obama. This he was trying about, to take our uh, guns all those years. It was only because of Saint Trump that he didn't do that. Right. You notice that Winston doesn't have any guns. If he had a gun, he'd be able to take care of That's himself. Right. This is this makes me feel worse. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> so I would say a good companion piece to this is the Adam Curtis documentary, uh, Hypernormalization, which actually he doesn't talk about 1984 as much as you would think that he does, but he does um Talk a lot about Stalker, which is interesting that he uses Stalker as one of his his pieces that he goes to and kind of covers more recent history. And I mean, I know he made this he made hypernormalization in 2016, but just that we're a week away from uh, having done an airstrike on Syria and he continually goes back to Syria, especially when it's like 
And then we blamed Gaddafi, and everyone else said that it was actually Syria that did this. And it's like, oh, okay. It, it, it's frightening. You know, I mean, when he made it, the Arab Spring had not happened or not worked out in Syria, and they were already in their civil war. But just the way that he kept coming back to that was just like, oh, okay. Um, and I kept waiting. This was my first Adam Curtis documentary, and I having that experience that and having only experienced his stuff via, um, you know, experiencing this one via YouTube. And there were all of these, uh, copyright strikes against it because, um, you know, he uses so many pre-appropriated, uh, material. I was like, okay, well, this, this could be crazy town. You know, this could be, this could be Alex Jones level of performance art kind of thing. There was at no point were things, crazy so that's what was the most disturbing thing is that the way that he presented everything was just like yeah yeah (laughs) i can i can totally see your point on all this stuff at no point was he like i'm not saying that it's aliens but (laughs) this one i wish it was aliens i wish to god it was i'm still holding out hope actually that it's aliens (laughs) truth be told i did vote for kudos God, Emily, that's scary because I almost said the exact same. <laughs> <laughs> or did you vote for Kang? <laughs> no, I vote. I threw my vote away. Oh. Go ahead, vote for a third party. No, I didn't vote for a third party. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, no! Don't say that right now. I can't say, hear it. Right. No, no, don't make them think they did it right because they didn't. <laughs> no. I still want to punch people in the face for that. How's that? How's that uh, protest vote working out? <laughs> uh. Well, you know, Hillary, no, no, actually, no, I know her emails, guys, her emails, her emails. I I wish that there was a ray of hope I could kind of end this episode on, but there's, there's not. I'm going to stick to that kernel of hope in, in the Radford version that maybe I pretended he gave me where, you know, Winston doesn't say, I love you, big brother. He says, I love you. To something in the world. To the universe. And, yes. And I'm going to hold on to the hope that, you know, maybe deep down he knew it was the chance for a better world or something. Because I need that right now. Welcome to Walmart. I love <laughs> <laughs> no, God. God, what an awful way to end it. Oh, now I'm just going to cry. <laughs> well. I'll try to end it a little bit nicer, and I'll I'll ask you ladies what you've been up to lately, because you both have things that are going on in the world that aren't as depressing as 1984. So, Emily, what's been keeping you busy lately? Uh, well, I still do a podcast with my good partner, Christine Makepeace, and our podcast is called The Feminine Critique. We cover movies, and I will say our last episode was pretty fun because we did The Hunger and Sleepwalkers. And I don't know how long it's been since you've watched Sleepwalkers. And, you know, Mike, I don't know if you're ever planning on doing a, you know, four hour long projection booth episode on it. But it is way stupider than you remember. And it's kind of a uh, And then I also blog over at DeadlyDollsHouse.com where I tend to just watch really bad movies. So which also kind of cheers me up and gives me hope in the world somehow. Also, I, I totally didn't realize 
like, I guess I just didn't put it together when at the beginning of the episode, but I like your podcast and I love, I love Christine because oh, years ago, she is the best. But years ago, when I first started writing, I wrote for Paracinema and nice. she's was such a great experience to have as an editor because she was just amazing and supportive. And uh, yeah, I don't know why I spaced on that. <laughs> when you said that at the beginning of the episode, I was like, yeah, I don't know that podcast. <laughs> Just kidding, I do. And everyone should listen to it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, Christine is wonderful. She's a fantastic writer and a fantastic talker. And yes, all uh, all my love to her. So Sam, is uh, Daughters of Darkness going to be covering Sleepwalkers anytime soon? <laughs> we don't, we do don't have a plan to do that. We're, we're in the middle of a couple episodes that are themed around the Cathal Toehill and Pete Toombs book, Immoral Tales. So we've done one on Jess Franco. That was our most recent one. And we did one on La Raz and we have a couple more and we're having way too much fun with all of them. <laughs> and how is uh, Diabolique, the magazine going? Uh, Diabolique is going really well. We have a ridiculous amount of content. Uh, we've been doing these sort of themed seasons and right now we just started an Asian cinema themed season which sort of corresponds to our print magazine, which just after, I think like about a year hiatus, just came back into print. So it's really, really nice to be doing that when so many other magazines seem to be closing their doors, at least as far as print goes. There's the way of hope right <laughs> And it's much harder to alter a magazine than it is the internet. You could burn all the copies, though. True. Not to be the Debbie there, Downer. We could have hard evidence of something that happened, so hold on to it. <laughs> I know those lottery numbers. They've never come There's, up before. Let me check my records. That was the last anybody ever heard of Mike. <laughs> I mean, hey, I got cut off from the internet earlier, so you don't even know. Very true. We all could be vaporized as soon as we hit, you know, stop the call. <laughs> So we have we talked about like what's in our room 101? No, but I'd be very curious what's in yours. Uh, mine would be one of two things. It would either be fuzzy black caterpillars, which I have a crazy phobia of, or ventriloquist dummies that want to eat my face. Fuzzy black caterpillars. Yeah, Is I've that... always had a weird, <laughs> I have nightmares about them my whole life. I have this really weird thing about cabbage. Ooh. <laughs> it's... It sounds really stupid when I say it out loud, but I just really, I, so I don't think I have any genuine phobias. I, like I'm claustrophobic around people. So crowds, like if it was a crowd of people all eating sauerkraut, that is basically my version of hell. <laughs> so yeah, that sounds really stupid, but that's all I got. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not like signing up for that. No, I'll give you that. That, that sounds horrific. I hate. Uh, foam rubber. Really? So like really? The, the insides of couch cushions. Yeah, I just hate the texture of it. So I think that would probably be mine is if they like strapped my hands to foam rubber and made me feel Ooh, it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I also wouldn't sign up for that. I, I probably wouldn't sli- sign up for uh, your guys' hell. Either. That smell of sauerkraut, you can't get away from it. Oh, my folks oh. loved sauerkraut when I was a kid. Every time I smell yeah. it, I want a hot dog. So I, I, I can't quite understand it, but I feel like if I smelled it too much, it would turn me off. I wasn't ever tortured with sauerkraut. <laughs> I actually have a better time with sauerkraut than I do with just oh. boiled cabbage. Oh. 
that smell is even worse. Because boiled cabbage, yeah, that is that's a whole different. It's level. awful. We're, we're we're talking about some double <laughs> stuff. We are. <laughs> that's the next stage is to figure out your seven levels of what they would all be. So you like, realize we also made this really person. we made this really easy for when we all get whisked away in the middle of the night. Yeah, I've, I've long thought about that, but I feel like my fears have been out there in the world for a long time. So. And remember, we're all being watched at all times anyway, so the telescreen already knew what I was uh, scared of. Yeah, I don't know why my webcam turned on midway through this recording. <laughs> or why the picture on my computer suddenly started blinking, but hey. Uh... Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show, and where you can find out if we are currently at war with Eurasia or <laughs> East Asia. I will try to keep those updated. It's kind of like that Is Abe Not a Dead <laughs> website, which is now Aww. the saddest yeah. website in the entire world. Yeah, this would be a way to turn that into a positive, I guess. Well, every uh, everybody who donates gets early access to every show, as long as I'm not running late. And uh, every donation and every rating we get helps uh, the projection booth take over the world. It also helps uh, keep that uh, boot stomping onto a human face uh, forever. We all thought it was coming. <laughs> We've always known.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.